Hey everybody, and welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee with our head coach, Chad Zimmerman. Hi, everybody. Our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hi, everybody. And we are here to answer more of your cycling and triathlon related questions. <laughs> and apparently, well. <laughs> yeah, Nate's mimicking Chad. Very, very flattering. Uh, we, you can submit those questions at trainerroad.com slash podcast. You can jump into the forum. You can go to forum.trainerroad.com. And we will have uh, a post specifically on this episode where you can come in and ask questions about anything that we talked about. Um, our film producer, Brennan, today uh, will even be, uh, he, he's, manning the ropes here, but he might even be throwing in some links if he, if he has the time uh, while we're talking here, but that's a good spot to be able to find out more about what we're mentioning on this episode. And you can also join the conversation, tons of folks over there on the forum. It's a, it's a very active forum, uh, tons of good information there. So, uh, I even saw a thread the other day about somebody asking about the time that you should wait after getting a tattoo to ride a bike. I mean, they cover everything. So yeah, <laughs> everything's covered. <laughs> uh, so first of all, I want to thank everybody for reviewing and submitting or for reviewing the podcast on iTunes. Uh, they keep coming in. If you don't feel like we deserve a five-star review, just let us know what we can do to make it better. And then hopefully we can earn that five-star review. And then also for submitting questions, we've had really good questions submitted recently. Uh, so it's pretty awesome. Uh, first things before we jump into the questions, a uh, few things. Uh, so we learned, or I should say this week, Nate, you raced your bike. I raced my bike, two totally different areas this time. We didn't race together. Yep. Uh, I raced mountain bikes. You raced two races, Yep. two criteriums or a criterium in a circuit race. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, let's cover some, some takeaways on that really quick. Yeah, biggest takeaway, um, hills suck. <laughs> <laughs> they're, just, they're not needed in cycling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yours is not a building, a body built to go uphill. Yeah. You just called me, uh, <laughs> uh, it's a very thanks, kind Chad. way of doing that. Chad. I like it's it. hard. We either have to have a ton of power or we got to not ditch fat. a bunch of weight. I yep. just have a body that's not built to go uphill. So. <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> you can only do so much at six, six. I mean, you're only going to get so light. It's true. I mean, like, and, and that's something that's, in, you, you can still be a good climber relative for your you can, weight. Actually. No, yeah, you can. Those long levers do wonders. Can yep. do wonders. Yeah. Well, it's um, the power to weight ratio. Uh, yeah, it yeah. is. But when you're going up against the pointy end of like, you know, everybody in a certain region, then of course you're always going to be at a slight disadvantage. Yeah. And it's a, that's a good point you're talking about is like, um, so I can still be a good climber, but not a probably great climber with like, yeah. I'm probably not going to outclimb the cat one people in Northern California right. ever, maybe. but in a, in a crit or time trial, maybe I could compete. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, what happens with your brain, I think it happens for a lot of people is you start to want to try to be awesome at everything. Mm -hmm. And you can do that for like a certain level. But once you get to the, the higher levels, you do that. And then you just have this, like, I should eat. No, I shouldn't eat. I should lose weight. Yeah. I should gain weight. Yeah. Um, I should, you know, I should spend more FTP. time doing it or yeah. Like, like yeah. steady sustained mm -hmm. stuff or I should mm -hmm. spend more time doing repetitive and then you hard become stuff. bad at everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think probably a lot of people listening to this have done that. And after these races, I even like, I ate a little bit less couple nights and then I stopped because yeah. it's, I'm not gonna, if I lose two, three, four pounds, I'm still not gonna be able to climb like the big climbers. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's pointless. I'm not gonna be 165. We'll cover, 155. we'll cover more on that a little bit later on where we talk about kind of weighing that, that, that weight mm -hmm. to power sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, I raced my mountain bike down in Southern California, the first pro XCT of the year, which what is, is a pro XCT. That's like the premier mountain bike series. So it'd be similar to like USA crits, uh, but you can race it as an amateur as well. And they have amateur categories. So I'm not racing as a pro. Um, I was racing as an amateur and this was a UCI, um, I think a HC or a C one, one of the two. So it was, it was a very highly ranked race, uh, for the pros. They had, uh, the field was more international than it was uh, American, which is pretty cool to see. <laughs> 
Uh, but I wasn't racing them. Thank goodness. Instead, I was just racing a ton of extremely fast people and I got, I got, I got my teeth kicked in, so to speak. Um, it was really hard, uh, but it was great to meet so many podcast listeners. There were a ton of them down there. Uh, thanks for, for taking the time to chat and all that stuff. That was really cool to meet you all. Um, and I wanted to share a few things that I learned. Uh, first of all, it's first race of the season. So you have to manage your expectations or first real race, like the, within this arena for me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, having raced this race before, I, I know that down in Southern California, a lot of these guys are rip roaring and ready to go already, uh, for this time of the year. And, uh, I'm definitely not in that position quite yet. I'm building up toward July. So you have to manage your expectations there. I shouldn't expect to set the world on fire. Um, and I think that's an important thing because that's hard for us type A athletes to separate the result. From I the think here's my thing, Chad. I'll mm -hmm. talk to you, Chad. Well, Jonathan, you just listen. Okay, sounds good. Jonathan's biggest issue right now is he had two good years of knee problems where he couldn't train consistency, consistently. Mm -hmm. And he was very high level before. Mm -hmm. And now he's starting to train consistently again, but he lost two years. Yeah. And uh, his off-the-couch fitness is four watts per kilo, which is very frustrating. Yeah. But he's not where he was. So he gets in there, and he's just not ready. So I think at you, if you were coaching him, you would be like, just as he's saying, just give it patient. some time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not deconditioned. So you're not starting from a super low point. You maintain right. fitness over those couple of years. So you're not starting from scratch, but you did achieve a, a particular level of ascendancy and now you have to get back to it. And it is, it is a process. He's near mm -hmm. one watt per kilo less. Mm -hmm. yeah. So like you just, yeah. you can't expect to right. not get smoked. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, uh, and it's, 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 it hurts the ego, but I think it's good as well. If you manage that appropriately, it can be really yeah, good. But you even stated yourself that you're on a two year trajectory, right? Yeah. This isn't meant to happen this season. Certainly mm -hmm. not to, meant to happen this, you know, early in this season either. Yeah. The first race. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. You got, you got time. You it's got a long okay. season ahead of you and you yeah. got a long two year course ahead of you as well. It's easy to freak out, right? In the moment you're, or even after the race, like last night after a workout, I had a good workout and I was just like, why the heck did I get beat so badly? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you talked about it and you had a lot yeah. of stress coming into it and during the, yeah. the, the, the immediate lead up to the race. Yeah. I feel like, uh, uh, with work responsibilities and, and everything else coming into it, the day before was far from like a, I, an ideal race prep. Sorry, right? Jonathan. Oh no, it's, it's fine. No, it's, uh, it's, it's that work thing. Yeah. I hope it's, I, that, that definitely know, sounds like a complaint and I hope it's not, it's just, that's cause that's just the way it is. And how many other people <clears throat> oh, yeah. were working away like crazy mm -hmm. the day before doing that's just, that's what we all face. Yeah. In the amateur ranks, that's pretty much how it goes. Yeah. That's what we all face. Uh, I could have done some other things probably to optimize that day. Just, you know, looking to spend as much time off my feet. I did a great job at keeping up on hydration that day. And I actually took in, even though I wasn't, uh, I pre-read the course, just like a lap because I already knew the course from previous years, but I made sure I took in electrolytes. I made sure I ate plenty, that sort of stuff. I did really well on the nutrition side, I feel like. Um, but I just could have spent more time resting, less time being active uh, the day before that would have helped, but also flying versus driving, uh, just because this I'm going down again this weekend to Temecula. So same rough region. Mm -hmm. And I looked at, it and that's 40 hours, almost 40 hours a week that I would be in the car driving. And those are, you know, that's just four trips and it would be 40 hours. That would be a lot. So looking at that, it's a lot of time. And I think we <laughs> underestimate the amount of stress that, that driving actually conveys. I mean, you've yeah. talked about putting your car on autopilot to, to kind of diminish some of that stress. Yeah. And that was kind of a lightning bolt moment. It's like, oh man, that would, because it is stressful, especially if you get into the, the busy California highways, because most of our races are over the hill and we yeah. have to mingle with traffic 
that we're not used to mm -hmm. at all. Driving stress is real. Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And especially on long drives, I feel like it probably adds up more than we realize, you know? So, uh, but, so I flew down in this case, but there were a lot of things that, and I've, I've flown to races before, but this time, uh, not having any sort of a person with me or anything else to help, like, you know, it was hard to, for example, my, my brakes, they had a fantastic bleed coming in, no issues, but then somehow in the flight, uh, it seems like something happened and I lost a lot of travel with my front brake. So I had like a millimeter of not even a millimeter, just like barely any distance between my pads and my rotor. Mm. So I really wish I could have like bled my brakes. And if I would have driven, I would have brought a bleed kit. Right. But since I flew, I didn't bring brake fluid and all that stuff. Uh, so just like things to think about there. And I've now thought ahead and how I'm going to handle that for this one. Uh, so when you think of flying versus driving, like actually write down all the things that you need to do and might need to do, and then try to formulate a plan about how you would address that. Yeah. I think it's a good idea to do. There's another thing you said that Sonia Looney, um, uh, commented on before too. So the day before the race or the day of the race, um, you are in a little different situation where you usually work at the race or like you're doing things and talking to people, yeah. but other people too, they work remote or they have a computer mm -hmm. and Sonia or Sonia, I always say it wrong. Yeah, Sonia, yeah. sorry, <laughs> Looney, um, had this too, where like, it's maybe a race at three o'clock or the day before you're, you don't have anything planned. You just sit down and you lay down. And what you do is you see, Oh, there's so much email I could catch up on, yeah. right? There's so much of this. Yeah. And there is, that takes mental stress, mm -hmm. um, a ton. Uh, yeah. uh and, and she said, she just stopped doing it. And, uh, I think people, you know, do whatever, read a book, watch TV. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Do, do something that does not take a bunch of mental stress to be able to, uh, it, it impacts your race, yeah. especially for important races where you're going to, you know, you're flying someplace to go do it. Yeah. And we should cover that. I'm trying to get points for nationals, right? So then I can get a better call up position. So that is a consequential race. Yeah. Uh, I guess the, and also before I forget, good luck to Sonia Looney. She's, I believe they just did stage three at the Cape. Yeah, she's in there. Uh, she's fighting away. She said, it's, she said like, everybody is so fast this year. Um, but she's like, she's amazing. Yeah. So. You look at her in Strava and every ride she does, it's just like queen of the mountain, queen of the mountain, queen of the mountain. She'll <laughs> get like 15 of them in one ride. It's amazing. Like, yeah. 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 So good luck. Sonia, uh, keep, keep plugging away there. Um, but yeah. And then I think the last bit is warm up. So I tried to pick up my race packet the day before, couldn't pick it up. Uh, so I ended up picking it up that morning. We raced first thing in the morning at 8am. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it made things a little bit more complex. Now this week it's the same schedule. Um, I'm going to once again, try to pick up my race packet on Friday. Hopefully they're around so that that can happen. And if they're not, then I have a, a whole process in place. I'm getting up earlier. I'm putting in a very thorough and, and easier warm up. Nothing that's going to be quite so hard. Because the interesting thing that I found with this one is I started off, the race wasn't as hard as I thought, but it was still an extremely hard first lap. I think it was like 330 normalized for the first lap. And my FTP down there is probably somewhere around 315. So for a mountain bike on an XCO course, that's really high. Like I usually see a lower normalized power. So that probably made me tired, but my second and third laps were really bad. I just felt like I could push as hard as I could, but nothing was happening. Yeah. And the fourth lap was actually good. The final lap was actually the second best lap. Started to feel like you're coming around. Yeah. And I thought about this, uh, cause some people may experience this in races and I think, uh, two things, physical and mental, I think on the physical side, my warm up probably, I mean, it was not ideal. It was too short and I think a little too intense, right? Uh, I didn't give myself enough time. I usually would like to warm up for 45 minutes to an hour. And this was closer to 15 to 20 minutes as all I had. So that would be nice. But then on the other side of things, I think physically or mentally, I don't, I think that it took me a while to get used to the, the, the true, like the, the war 
like, I guess, mind state that you get into when you're racing, especially a course with really steep climbs like that. And it took me a while, honestly, to be okay with hurting that bad. I think, Mm. um, I didn't think of that in the moment, but in the last lap, I felt like I was okay with going deeper. And before that I felt like governed almost, and it was like subconscious. Uh, so the first race of the season, when you have these sort of moments where you're wondering why can't I open it up, it might just be because you're coming into it with some central fatigue. Yeah. 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 that the, just that CNS load that we've talked about, I mean, how many ways you can impact that prior to the race. And even the morning of standing mm. in what you said was a long line, <laughs> super long, stressing yeah. the whole time thinking I have so many other things to do prior to the race and I can't even get my package yeah. to get started on those things. <laughs> yeah. That's stressful. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that maybe, uh, on the mental side, uh, you might think like, maybe it just wasn't a good warm up, but consider the psychological aspect of it for sure. Like you said, that fatigue there's a, that you get there's out. another great point on this. So Ironman athletes know this and mm. they're really good at it, but it can swing the other way. I've seen Ironman athletes before the race, if things don't go perfect, mm. like, you know, the stress level, yeah, <laughs> it, it blows just, apart. It blows <laughs> yeah. apart. So yeah. you got to be cool. Uh, there's this story of Mark Allen, who's a famous multi-time Ironman world champ. And, um, so he was like, he had a, uh, somebody was riding, he was running somewhere in Hawaii. Somebody picked him up and he got in the back of the pickup truck and he was like, totally chill, like totally relaxed. And he looked down at his shoe and he saw a syringe in his shoe, like, but it did oh not pierce gosh. through his foot. He goes, huh, look at that. He just took it out. But the people were like so amazed about how chill this guy was <laughs> going into yeah. the race. And yeah. he's, you know, world champ. And they, they realized he, who he was afterwards. Yeah. Mm. Um, but that's the kind of like, you, you can't, you got to reduce the stress ahead of time. But then in the moment, you just let it roll off your back and be chill. Water off yeah. the Don't be that crazy Ironman athlete who is full of rage and yells at like volunteers and stuff like that. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. Uh, The, the other thing that I realized just in the race too, is, uh, SoCal, especially like all all XC races start hard, but those folks start really hard. And I, I think I, I did catch a lot of people on the last lap, but then also on the first lap, I even saw people just blowing up spectacularly. Uh, even though XC races start hard, that doesn't mean that you can somehow overstep your bounds. Like you still have to stay within your limits. Like, Mm -hmm. even though it's really hard, you still have to stay within your limits. So if you find yourself going too hard, just because that's what everybody else does, remember that you'll be better off at the end of the race. So, um, is there anything else that you wanted to share from your racing takeaways? Um, just I'll do real quick. So I want to tell everyone that on YouTube, we have videos where I've been recording these and Pete has been analyzing them Mm -hmm. and critiquing them. Um, super awesome learnings. We have five of them, but still need to come out. And these six. Cause there's the mountain bike one too. Six of them that still need to come out, <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah. And, uh, I got third place in the hilly road race, which that feels good. That was a cat three, four thirty five plus, but it's almost all just cat threes. Mm-hmm. And to some people who are listening, you have plenty of points to upgrade to cat two. Please upgrade. Maybe double the points to upgrade to cat two. Uh, but I lost that by a quarter of a wheel, which is a really annoying. And that like hurts. That's when the edit- one that I saw, right? That's the one with the pictures. Yes. It is so annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it looks like, uh, and you said that you went to shift. And nothing happened. Yes. Yeah. ETAP just chose to throw those shift commands into the ether and nothing I don't know happened. what happened. Uh, <laughs> that then, would be super frustrating, right? Like, yeah, coming mm-hmm. into the line. You can yeah, all be frustrated point. when you see it and oh, people yeah. will make fun of me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but out of 3,200 feet or a thousand meters of climbing in one hour. Meters? A thousand. Per hour? Per hour. Not per, a thousand okay, meters. Okay. Now we're talking lap here. We're yeah. talking total race. Yeah. We're talking total race. That would be insane. A thousand meters in an hour? 
Uh, oh, in an hour, yeah, yeah, yeah that an could hour. work. Three thousand feet. I was thinking lap for some reason. We thought for lap, yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. No, thirty-two hundred yeah. feet for the whole thing, yeah. and a thousand yep. meters for a lap. So it's yep. still pretty hilly. And then I did a technical for the race. <laughs> the race, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. Whatever, you guys know what I mean. Yeah, Forget, yeah. We got it. Uh, the other one was a technical crit, uphill, and then very fast downhills, like very fast, thirty mile per hour. Lean your bike over more than forty-five degrees, and I got fourth in that. On one. sketchy pavement too, I heard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, anyways, we'll have. It's best to watch the videos on those. Sounds good. Cool. Uh, let's move into Chris's question. He says, hey, guys, I want to say that I really appreciate Nate's openness and honesty about his journey to discover what is wrong with him, he says. <laughs> That's what my wife says. <laughs> yeah. That's going to be a long journey. you got to yeah. figure it out. <laughs> long journey. Ouch, Chad. That was just thing. Uh, uh, so he says, when a doctor suggests that the issue could be mental illness, it could be devastating, humiliating, and throw someone into deep denial. So thank you for opening up about that. Uh, here in Canada, there's an ongoing campaign you may have heard of called Bell Let's Talk. Uh, the first person to be the face of this program was Olympian Clara Hughes, and the, she is the only athlete in history to win multiple medals in winter and summer Olympics, who wrote across Canada to raise awareness for mental health issues and conversations. So if anybody wants to find out more about that, we thought that was a really cool thing to share uh, here. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's letstalk.bell, B-E-L-L dot C-A slash E-N. Um, and that's where you can go to that URL and check that out. Uh, he says, thanks for the great podcast and all the coaching you do via that platform. Cheers. Yeah. And coincidentally, when we were up at Powder Creek doing our, uh, skiing, ski touring best week ever. Yeah. Shelly Peachel, um, one of the <laughs> lodge amazing. owners shared a book with me. Uh, it actually had it set aside for me and it was Claire Hughes book, mm. uh, open, open heart, open mind and good read. I blew through it. It was actually yeah. very compelling. I, I, I definitely enjoyed it and it's an easy read. And I think there's something for, for most athletes in there. So mm. I highly recommend reading it. Um, but one thing that kept occurring to me that I just couldn't get past is they kept talking about how all her athletic endeavors masked her underlying depression. And, mm. and I, every time I read something to that effect, it made me wonder, or did her fatigue lead to that depression. I mean, it's, it's hard to differentiate, you know, carp, you know, carp before the horse, chicken like, or the egg. First, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, I guess in one respect, you simply can't there's gotta be some disassociate them. You can't, right? Yeah, Cause sure. it's all related in yeah. some respect. Yeah, fatigue causing depression, depression leading to fatigue uh, and vice versa. Yeah. Some yeah. people emailed me and said, I am depressed because I'm sick all the time. I'm so frustrated with it. Yeah, and you're just, yeah. I mean, you're just beating your body up all the time. It's going to have some, some psychological impact. Yeah. Yeah. It will. I think that it's a, and, and I mean, like we were talking about earlier and you know, separating the physical from the psychological in terms of your performance on the bike, that sort of thing. Yeah. A lot of the time I feel like us athletes are very guilty of just putting ourselves into this. Uh, we're just a physical machine. Yeah. You can't separate the two. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. And, and you simply can't, and, and you have to make sure that you're, you're caring for both for sure. Um, yeah. So, uh, I thought that was great. And hopefully, uh, this can hopefully, when you see these sort of things, read these sort of books, that sort of stuff, it can really make you a, a better athlete, but a better, you know, just a more whole individual as well. Chad, can you say the book name and the author one more time? Yeah. Clara Hughes. It's H-U-G-H-E-S. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure there's an E in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, Open Heart, Open Mind. Awesome. Daniel says, I'm watching your race video where Nate bridges to a break on the last lap of a road race. That was cool, by the way. Uh, Nice job, Nate. Thank you. He says, towards the end of the lap, the three of you attack and are constantly rolling through pulling turns at the front and what we would call a pace line, usually. Rotating. I've heard it's less efficient to make so many changes on the front as you lose a bike length each time you do. Uh, so, so he says, he says, is there a sweet spot to efficiency on how long to pull turns and does it depend on the situation? So this is... Uh, uh, 
I feel like I'm sure we've all ridden in many different groups. And sometimes you, you jump in with a group and you're riding with them and you're just like, when the world is going on Mm -hmm. in a pace line, they are done very differently. And the thing is, there is no one single right way to do it. Yeah. It should always depend, right? It absolutely depends on the situation. Because if you have like a team time trial of four riders, you know, specifically the strengths of those riders, how they're feeling on that day. And, you know, a couple, a couple turns into it, a sense of a deeper sense of how they're feeling on that day. But that's, that's tightly orchestrated. Whereas when you find yourself just in a break of, of a certain number of riders, you don't know their strengths. You don't know really hardly anything about them except what you can glean right there in the moment. Mm-hmm. So these things come together on the spot and you have to figure out how to best make it work. I feel like it's a lot like what you used to do, Nate, long ago when you played in a band, right? Uh, Improvisation. Like, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, it's not like, the metal stuff, <laughs> jazz stuff. And it's through the process of actually like, you know, making music that you find out how to best jive. I see where like you're going. That, right. Like it's not like a, it's not like everybody comes in and you know exactly the tendencies and skill levels of every other musician, mm-hmm. and that's how you guys plan it and orchestrate it. But certain it. principles are always at play. You just have mm-hmm. to wonder, do these other writers understand those principles? Yeah, I feel like that's – does that help? Do you think of that at all when you're in, when you're in pace lines or anything else like that? Or is that You'll I find mean, out real quick. You're probably way just more natural at it than all of us. Think of what? Like the the fact of improvisation and being able to just no. kind of jive. You don't think of that? No. Man. I, I, I think everyone think should take longer, harder pulls. <laughs> <laughs> Except for you. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Yeah. okay no, I mean, yeah, and, and, and how uh, – <laughs> actually, this is what I'm really thinking through my head is how how likely is the group behind us to catch us and how hard should I pull mm. in order to, to make it so that we either stay away or if I don't care if we're going to stay away. Yeah. Um, and also not – this is my biggest mistake when I was first racing like – 10 years ago is I would go as hard as I could each time and I actually drop myself from a breakaway. (laughs) Right. Oh yeah. It happens. A little hill comes and I just can't, I can't do it. And I I made the breakaway probably go faster, but probably slower too. Yeah. Um, There's also situations where in this race too, I probably could have pulled, I don't don't know. There's, so if you look at my races, you can pull too hard, right? We've talked about that a lot of times, but I think too, at the end of a race, pulling a little bit too hard, it just gasses everybody else too. Yeah. Like you can, it's you like, can. A, it's if you're like the a strongest rider and you've recognized that it's an awesome tactic. Yeah. yeah. You have to analyze your motives. Do you want the break to succeed together? Or do you want to, you know, as they say, always in announcing, you know, throw the cat amongst the pigeons, yeah. kind of scatter that break away. Yeah. Are you planning to attack that break or do you just want to whittle it down? Cause even if you can shed one rider from the break, that's one less rider you have to yeah. worry about when you do decide to do something more pivotal. Or the, if the break is crucial to you guys staying away and it's early on, you don't want to shed, you don't want to shed sure. it, right? Cause you want another set of legs. This is at the end. And I, I didn't do this, but I think anyone who's ridden in a breakaway, you know, that when you peel off. Mm. it's getting back on sometimes can be mm-hmm. tough. That's the true hard part. <laughs> he had a good tip on the video. He said, as soon as you see that last rider and you know what that last rider is, especially in a group of three you better, yeah. in the corner of your eye, you start to accelerate right then. Yeah. Cause what I was doing in this video is I would drop back and I would start accelerating once I was behind him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it would take, it would be a more of an acceleration that, takes more energy. It's a tough way to learn that lesson, but you, you have to get good at reintegrating. I mean, it takes place in parts. You're on the front and then you're drifting back and then you're reintegrating and then you're moving through again. So it's in those four parts and none of those four parts can be weak or or you'll pay for it. (laughs) Yeah, that's really true. The, the other thing I think people misunderstand, and, and I think Pete mentioned this before, but if you feel like you have plenty of energy, but you want the break to succeed and stay together, you pull harder or pull longer, not harder, 
right? Uh, you don't need to do a hero pull. You just take more of that work. If that you that depends fresh. too. I mean, it depends on the composition of your break and how well mm -hmm. everyone's doing. But uh, what I would guess is you guys knew that you had to put in hard pulls. So they had to be short pulls, really short, hard pull, move off, yep. do it again. But that allowed you to keep what percentage of your FTP during those pulls? Oh, I'm, I'm betting pretty high. No, we, yeah, we, uh, I think I was doing them between 350 and 400, but yeah. they were short. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and they had to be. I mean, could you have done 350, 400 watt pulls for a minute at a time? Yeah. Well, you could have. Do you think the break could have sustained that? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nate's like, I'm just pulling hard. I just want other people to pull hard. It just works. No, out. <laughs> it, um, to the point about how hard to pull too. Yeah. Because uh, at uh, Auburn Crip, I uh, I kind of like established the breakaway. At least mm. in the video, it looks like that. Mm -hmm. And I did a longer, harder pull that was very hard mm -hmm. to try to to create a gap mm -hmm. because so that one in that case, it, to Chad's point, it really matters where you are in the race because if it's if you're three minutes ahead, Jonathan's point really matters. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a four bike length gap mm -hmm. on the field, that's the time to do that really hard pull sure. to try to, to break it apart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the other part that I think of too is, so first of all, the, the, I want to debunk the myth of every time you pull through, you lose a bike length. Uh, in an effective pace line, you don't lose a bike length at all. Yeah, if you're doing it poorly, you might, but yep. that's that's... Not I know how way, you would. And that's, I, I know exactly how you would. Yeah. So uh, if if you are a group that's pulling through and when a rider gets to the point where they kind of get to the front and then at that point they cut off their effort, so to speak, and pull over, and then the next person re-accelerates to, to that pace. That bike length, so to then speak. that's when that would happen. You see that with like a lot of inexperienced pace lines, that sort of stuff. But really the, the thing that you should think of as a pace line is uh, more or less – you maintain a consistent speed or perhaps is better said, you maintain a consistent effort level as a group. And that pace, when you roll through to the front, you're actually not accelerating any harder. You're having to push a little, or you're Same not accelerating speed. speed. Exactly. It's more watts because you're in the wind, but you're not making the group surge and you're not mm. changing that pace. So if you're doing that, then you're of course not losing any bike lengths uh, when a person switches over because you're maintaining the same pace. But a lot of the time you'll see people, a person pulls off and they go, okay, now it's my turn. And then they kind of re-accelerate and push. I like that. Same speed, more watts, but no acceleration. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, those right. accelerations just dismantle the whole thing. Yeah. They get, they get really painful. And once again, unless you want to really break up the group, yeah. then yeah. in that yeah, case. That's, that's intentional. Yep. Yeah. Especially you if it. your rider is about to get the, the, the strongest or the person you want to dislodge is about to get back on. Mm-hmm. Or just took his pull. Yeah, it just, that's what I mean. He just took their pull, and they're going to come back. Oh, I back. see what you're saying. Just mm -hmm. about to reintegrate. Yeah, and then you wait like two seconds, and then you surge. You do that like five times, <laughs> you will destroy them. That's cruel. Oh, yeah. That is cruel. Cruel but, but effective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. yeah, exactly. Uh, the other part that I want to cover on a pace line is some people wonder when you should rotate quickly, when you should take longer pulls. Once again, that depends on the group. It's all something you get a feel for as you work with whatever group you're, you're in. Yeah, but don't be afraid of short pulls and don't be afraid of long pulls. Mm -hmm. uh, they have their place and at times they will be absolutely useful uh, for you. And the one thing I found is that a lot of the time when you're keeping a pretty quick pace and you have a larger group than just say three people, I really favor the shorter pulls. Mm -hmm. So it keeps people rotating through quickly. Yeah, and you'll find too, as you move through the ranks, I mean, a cat three race can be a pretty mixed bag. You can get all sorts of riders, all sorts of ability levels. As you move into cat one, two, mm -hmm. you're gonna get a more consistent type of rider. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is for on this race, we were so close to the finish, like less than five minutes. Uh, I don't think anyone wanted to put themselves in a position mm -hmm. where they would do a Spin longer themselves. pull. Exactly. So if you do a long pull, then you're suddenly, um, so we could, <clears throat> we could attack you. Mm -hmm. But if we all are rotating in 
at this like pretty quickly. Like we're pretty much just a solid rotation through. Mm -hmm. um, you're less vulnerable to an attack. Yeah. You, you yeah, yeah, I mean? yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I absolutely, because if you're sitting at the back and it's a long time like that, you're put yourself in a yeah. spot where you might be stuck. If you do a 30 second pull and you're coming off, I know you're tired. And if I'm in the back and I'm fresh yeah. or I'm mm -hmm. second wheel, yeah. that's the time to or attack. Or if anybody's recognized you're this one of, or if not the strongest rider in the group and you just take a long pull, you're at your most vulnerable and something, if they're smart, is gonna happen right then. Yeah, yeah you're constantly analyzing your group mates based off of how they're pulling, right? Mm -hmm. That's like kind of a, a key you thing. You can fake it too. I mean, you can yeah. be the strongest guy and, and just do weak pulls and act like you're struggling to get back onto the back of it. I mean, you, you can. Yeah. This you can also skip pulls. You can skip pulls as well. You can. Yeah. This happened to me it's in not Auburn. not popular, I'm, but you can. I'm, <laughs> this is going to happen. This happened to a crit, but I think it's a good takeaway because not everyone who's listening to this will see the video. Yeah. But in the video, it demonstrates this very well. There was a, the very last lap, there was a slight gap and uh, uh, a guy had a teammate in the gap and it's only like two or three bike lengths and he's in front of me jeff i don't know if you're acting or not but he's shaking his head and like <sighs> giving the gap out and yeah, stuff yeah totally. uh and and i'm like are you he's a really good sprinter too so i thought he wanted me to close down the gap then he yeah. was gonna out sprint me yeah. um i actually stayed on his wheel and got in front of him right before the descent but it was it was tough and that's uh, he did yeah. a good very good tactic too of uh we didn't talk about this but if you have a teammate in the breakaway if you cause gaps, especially if you're acting tired. Yes. Um, that is so hard on people. Yeah. Um, you, you open up a three bike length gap. Mm -hmm. Someone has to cover that. Uh, if you're riding for your teammate, it's, it's an amazing tactic. It's probably worth saying too, if you find yourself in a breakaway and there is somebody disrupting that rhythm and doing that sort of thing, the onus is on the breakaway to get rid of that person. Um, you guys can get rid of that. Remember that whenever you're riding with that, that person isn't a necessary component of your group and you, you, you can, can try, you can try. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just something you have to deal with forever, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. There is an option. The, and then the other part, oh, Nate, you were going to, I don't want to take you off this vein because I have another one, but it's uh, slightly different. In the same vein, um, you'll get yelled at Yes. and, or people will yell at you and it's who it doesn't matter. Like yeah. it's totally okay to mess up the breakaway if you want to mess up the breakaway. Oh yeah. Um, or yeah, you got to take pulls. You got to have a thick skin if you're going to be that guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yeah and it's, it's true. It's only going to benefit your racing tactically. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So just that's that's I think that's the first thing that people do to you yep. is they yell at you, uh, and then you'd be like, okay, I'm sorry. Don't engage. Don't engage. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah exactly. I get roped into that far too often. Yeah. And it's it's it takes energy out of you. Yeah. Take, takes focus out too. I've been in pace lines before where people, uh, say that's the wrong way to pull off or the wrong way to rotate. Oh man, I can't just, just one time, <laughs> one time in particular, Triggered. we were Triggered. a three man group trying to get back on. And the guy kept yelling, pull left, pull left. Oh yeah. And I didn't, I didn't know what that meant at the time. I didn't know if he meant, I didn't know what it meant. Pull yeah, off yeah. left, pull, I mean, line up left Move in an echelon. I, I wasn't sure, yeah. but he just yelled it louder and louder every time. I'm like, man, I didn't understand it the first time. <laughs> yeah. I sure as heck don't understand it the 18th it's like time just because it's louder. Talking to someone in a different language and just say the words louder. <laughs> like, that doesn't yeah, help. That'll totally help. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I get that he was trying to be clear just using minimal words, but yeah. it wasn't. It, it wasn't sinking in. So maybe yeah. rephrase it and maybe try to be a little more descriptive. Yeah. And, and I, I guess on, when you're dealing with traffic, it's common to see the rider that pulls off and is 
going to the back to see them sheltered from vehicles. That's, that's common if you're dealing with that. And that's like a group ride situation, something like that. Right. But when you're in a race and you have a closed road or a closed lane, there is no left or right, which is best. That's totally up to the group. Many times what you'll try to do is the rider that's sheltered that, that is pulled off, you know, it's all wind dependent. Mm -hmm. So if you have the wind coming off of your left, um, a lot of the time, what you'll have is the rider that's, you know, that's, uh, just done his pole will be coming off in the shadow of the wind and then he'll be moving back in mm. or forgive me. He'll be on the, the other windward way. side, usually not the leeward side. The wind, so you're mm -hmm. still sheltering the people who are coming through. Yeah. He'll be on the windward side instead of the leeward side. And then he'll drop back in every time. And, uh, but you can also totally flip that on its head. I mean, there's, there's no reason why you can't do that. Just know that if you disrupt the, the rotating rhythm of the group, then that won't really work very well or people will be pretty upset. But you can establish things. And then, for example, like if you feel like uh, coming into a criterium, that sort of a thing, and you have a left-hand turn and the finish comes pretty shortly thereafter, you can set it up so that when a person basically, you know, when a person pulls off, uh, set it up so that they're kind of blocked in, or you can set it up so that that person who's just done a hard pull would have the best line to come in uh, to that finish straight, right? So you can basically think of the line choice that you have too. There's plenty of things that you can do with a pace line to influence how it'll work out. That's also a great tactic is if somebody's um, starting in the front and they're, they're getting on the inside of the road and there's a big line of people, and you can attack them because they get they get kind of caught. Mm -hmm. yep. They can't respond at all. Yep. Uh, so they're basically uh, boxed in. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a good method. Uh, if you and baselines are something that like uh, you can absolutely warm your way into. If this is not like a familiar thing for you, but it's something you'd like to try, mm -hmm. find a group of cyclists that you feel comfortable with, and and then work with them on it. And it can just be one other person too. You can practice it mm -hmm. with just two people. You can practice it with more. Um, but it's it's really cool. And when an effective pace lines happening and you're on like some sort of a group ride and you carry 30 something miles an hour through a section you're like this is amazing it's, it's, <laughs> like, i was gonna say it's kind of magical yeah. yeah for new riders if you haven't done this before i think everyone who does their first group ride with people that are good at a pace line yeah you like you come with this big smile and everyone yeah. like you ride on the internet it was so much fun just because yeah. your experience and yeah. it is a ton of fun to go that fast on and be that easy it really is and it feels like a machine oh yeah and it's a good way to get koms on flat sections like that too <laughs> right i know <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go into Chris's question. He says, I just want to say that I appreciate, uh, oh, forgive me. I'm, I'm already missing that one. Uh, let's go into Same. Sam's question. He says, Hey guys, first off, can you do a daily two hour podcast? Chad? The answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> we would if it weren't for Chad, guys. <laughs> yeah, if you really are. If you really are. Uh, he says, as it makes my day at work so uh, go so much quicker. Uh, he says, only joking, but keep with the great work. I have two races coming up early in the season. First is a 40-minute circuit race. And he says it's a pan-flat, one-and-a-half-kilometer tarmac track. So... That sounds like it's actually like just an oval. It's going to be a rocket ride. Yep. Yeah. And so it's going to be very straightforward flatness there. He says, the second is a two hour road race. He says, eight laps in the countryside involving a four mile incline at 2%. So that's really not much. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of drag that if you're really like on the edge of getting dropped off and the group is carrying a lot of pace, that's the sort of thing that will make you, you know, get tailed off. But it's not necessarily something where a big person can't do well. Oh, no. And Read on. Mm. He says, this part will be the most stressful as I weigh 95 kilograms. Yeah, that's not necessarily in your disfavor. Yeah. I mean, if you got a lot of power, I don't know if he's mentioned his power output. Now, I, I no. assume that it's relatively high for 95 kilograms, right? Um, he may be dealing with a bunch of, you know, little bantamweight little guys that, you know, don't have a big threshold. Maybe, but on a 2% incline, 95 kilograms can work. 
can work in your favor for sure. Yep, absolutely. It says, how would your preparation in a nutritional sense differ for these two types of races? So we have a short pan flat criterium, and then we have a circuit race that is relatively flat, but it's two hours long instead of just you know forty minutes. It says, what would you do in the days, hours, minutes leading up to the race, and then during the race? Would you even take a bottle on the forty-minute race? I'm tempted to ditch the bottle and the cage. Uh, so I guess first things first. Let's talk about the crit. Yeah, uh, what we would do. Who for would that. do a bottle? I wouldn't do a bottle. I wouldn't do anything. Not for a forty-minute race. I wouldn't do anything. I just yeah. make sure I came into it loaded up. I mean, even, anything you're going to ingest during that forty minutes isn't going to do anything in terms of energy stores. I mean, if he's thinking ahead to the, through the race the next day and he doesn't want to do any depletion over that forty minutes, that'd be the only concern I could get mm -hmm. behind. Mm -hmm. But even that, you're only going to do so much damage over the course of forty minutes. Damage that you can totally offset by coming in loaded up and then addressing your post-workout or post-race nutrition. And Chris, you from Specialized, I mentioned this before, but he said that bottles in cages is about five watts. And if you take out the bottles, it's still about two and a half watts for cages. So take both those off your Something. bike. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, and, and when you're, I think that a lot of the time, if people shake their head at those sort of like, you know, small gains, just think about that time when you just barely can't latch on. And there you go, right? You like just think the, about Toreno Adriatico coming down to one second. I know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah pretty one crazy. Second, over eight days, um, however many. I, I think that, like uh, in this case, if he's looking at a short race like this, chances are he's dealing with, and likely it's pan flat. It's an oval. It's probably mm -hmm. going to be a super intense race. Probably right. And and so so maybe he does want to take a bottle and does plan to drink. Good luck getting your hands off the bars. There, there are a <laughs> yeah. lot of races where they're so fast and so turning. Yeah. There's so much going on that you couldn't take a drink if you wanted to. You guys ever yep. done that where you take bottles and you yep. don't drink it the whole time? And you go, Why did I carry this? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I went without bottles this weekend, actually, in the race. And uh, thanks to Kyle Trudeau, who races for the CZ racing team, really fast guy. Um, Slim 493, I think, is usually where you can find him on all the different channels and stuff. Uh, but he is, he gave me feeds. That was really cool of him to do. And I didn't carry a bottle with me. The laps were about 50. 15 minutes. So I would come into the feed and I would basically just take down a bottle and just drink that thing. And it was, in this case, I had mix, you know, but then I would drop it. But in reality, so you would drink like half a bottle and or a full bottle. Yeah. They're pretty in, in small bottles. Time? And yeah. I would just take that bottle down in the feed zone. So, hmm. uh, but I've, that's something that I've done before plenty of times and kind of drank quickly. And it's actually something I've been doing in training is trying to down yeah. a bottle very quickly. So then I prep for that sure. and body reacts well. Um, but in a criterium, you can't take feeds uh, like that. You can't be taking bottles and then dropping them or anything else like that. So, uh, but yeah, it's, you don't, I guess that kind of breaks people's minds in some respects though, because circuit think, race I don't, might be able to, yes. Yeah. Uh, they don't usually don't think that they would take their bottle or cage off. Some of they think about it, it's kind of like, whoa, like, you know, it's yeah. a, it's a different thought process. Oh no, this is a 1.5 K circuit anyway. So yeah. not likely. At yeah. All. Yeah. Probably not. Um, so I guess what would you do Nate to load up for that? Since you're not going to be taking nutrition in during the race, what would you be taking in beforehand? Yeah. So, um, lots of carbs. I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> people yeah. probably already know Surprise. I'm going to say this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, oh, it's yeah. a 40 minute race. You don't need to do that. But, uh, I, there's, it just reduces RPE. Um, mm. and I, 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 I don't have science on this, but I feel like I finish pretty strong on, uh, short races like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm eating carbs, like I'm doing Leadville. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and two, the, it's the, to Chad's point, it's the next day too. Mm -hmm. I feel better. And if yeah. you do two races, you feel even better and you mm -hmm. have a better chance to do in the next race and you do gain a little bit of weight, but, uh, both of these races are pretty flat and yeah. even, uh, even my hilly race, I was, I'd rather have the power mm -hmm. than the weight. Um, we talk about it. Well, so my rule of thumb for weight gain and Watts is and someone can check me on this in physics, but 
is uh, one pound is one watt. Yeah, and, and this just, is averaged out. This right? is just a rule of thumb. Yeah. yeah. So what I do is I look at like climbs that Jonathan and I do and other people do. And I say, oh, okay, we climb this at the same rate than I did about as many watts, as many pounds um, yep. difference than you. So yeah. when you think about it that way, you're like, oh, I'm going to gain a pound of glycogen. You're like, well, that's yeah. one watt, but you're going to maybe put out <clears throat> 30 more watts in a sprint at the end or something. Yeah. And yeah. I've seen that calculation. It's on like a four, four to 6% grade, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and two, you think about bottle cages for five watts. You're like, well, if you could lose five pounds, yeah. um, I know it's different because of acceleration different and all that ones, quarter yeah. stuff, but Aerodynamics. Yeah. it's all, uh, I think people put too much into Emphasis weight. Emphasis on weight. I, I agree with that. Yeah. And I'm building a light bike at the moment, which is kind of, <laughs> kind of silly, yeah, yeah. but, uh, that's how it goes. It's how it goes. It's still fun. <laughs> I think before the race, I would take in that. I would take in a gel for sure, um, and then caffeine, like like you mentioned. Like, I, I like ten minutes prior. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the well, caffeine you want to take in further. Well, no, further no, not out. caffeine. The gel. The gel. Yeah. Yeah. I I do the gel twenty minutes, and the caffeine. Uh, it's it's totally dependent because I messed this up. Mm-hmm. This is another good tip. So you guys <laughs> have seen Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah. Yeah. When he takes the lewds and he goes. <laughs> They're like older and they have like a really long time delay because they're older. (laughs) I've noticed the same thing with caffeine pills that I buy because I don't take it very often. Some of them will be a year old and you take them and it takes like a good hour. I feel like for them, for myself, because you can feel when caffeine's in your your (laughs) veins. It starts going. Um, And then I just bought some new ones and, uh, you know, it's like 30 minutes and I'm ready to, I have to ride my bike at this moment. (laughs) Um, So just be aware of that. And I think right now what I'm doing is timing it about an hour to 30 minutes before the race to, to, to get that peak maximum amount of caffeine in my blood. Mm. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. 15 minutes, depending on the length of the race too. I've done a two where you take it right at the beginning for something like Leadville because so I don't want to later when you need it. Yeah. I don't want to have it like on the start line. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, too not much. Not needed then. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But in a crit or both of these races, you wouldn't. You want to time it pretty well. Now, how about for the road race? Um, for two hours long, I would expect to go through at least two bottles, or two bottles would be like the minimum that you would want to. Yeah. Uh, or yeah, yeah, that's like the bottle. Too large level. or too small? I, I, you know, I used to only carry small bottles, um, but and in a road race like this, I probably would only carry the small bottles. I probably wouldn't carry the big ones just because they're probably not needed. And I find the small ones are weight aside and everything else. The small ones are easier to handle a lot of the time for me. There's just, it's a less bulky thing to mm-hmm. work with. Um, so that, that could be it, but yeah, I would two bottles. I try to keep to that bottle an hour sort of the thing. And you're talking about carbohydrate bottles. Yeah. I would not just have normal water. I've, I've switched over unless it's like a long race. You kind of want to offset those things. So that sometimes you just have water, but for a short race, just give me fuel. Like mm. that's that's what I really need. I think on this one too, I would I would do large bottles if it was a hot day. Mm-hmm. If it was a yeah good uh, point. Uh, tempered day. I would do small bottles, mm-hmm. and then on road races, um, especially this one, it's only two hours. Because sometimes reaching your pocket, just like we talked about with bottles, it can be hard to get nutrition out. Yeah. So with this, I would consider doing the SIS beta fuel or the Martan um, 320. 320 the, or the, the 160. Stuff. 160. Yeah. Um, and, and either do that in both bottles or I, I would, I, I like a lot of carbs. So I would do it in both bottles. So you, yeah. I would get a maximum amount for each hour, yep. but you could also go one of those in like a bottle of water or one of those in a bottle of scratch. And then you don't have to worry about anything else. And there is a weight component to carrying gels. I measured, well, SAS gels are like, I don't know, like 60, yeah, 70 grams each. Yeah, yeah. And you put five of them in your pocket. It's weight. Uh, it's a, I mean, we're talking a half pound there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of weight. I know we about, just talked about like, you know, people putting too much stock into weight, but when you're looking at it, if you, if you're already carrying bottles, you might as well be getting your energy from that instead of carrying something else. That's just going to be extra. Yeah. Weight. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The other thing too, and like a fully full disclosure on this one, I've definitely dropped gel packets totally inadvertently, but you know, because when you're pulling the gel out and you're opening up and you take it in and you try to put it in your back pocket and you miss that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. it does. And, and every time that happens in the middle of a race, even still, I feel so terrible about it and yeah. I'll go back and I'll try to find it and pick it up, but it does, it's something that I don't want to worry about at all. And if I can just take it in through my bottles, that's going to be much better. Yeah. So, and, and who, who we talked to Sam, mm-hmm. if you haven't done it, definitely do this in training too, because I can't tolerate carbohydrate in, in liquid form. I mm. just, it's just too much, too much food, too fast. Yeah. on my gut and it just makes me feel nauseous pretty much the whole ride. So I just do uh, like carbohydrate, very light with electrolytes. And basically it's, it's more water than, well, it's going to be more water than anything anyway, but mm-hmm. very light on the carbohydrate. And then I eat solid food. So, yeah. and I still haven't figured out exactly what that solid food is, but uh, <laughs> I'm working on it. For a, for a two hour race, I feel like you can basically get by with the same flavor all the way through. But yeah, then when you, s- you step up when it's a longer race, like Leadville, <laughs> You need some difference, right? Some like variety. if you have the same oh, flavor yeah. the whole day, it's really rough. Yeah. So yeah, variety and flavor and texture and I mean, sweet versus savory. And yeah. You got to mix it up. That's a long race. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, Andrew's question. Ready for that? It says, Hey guys, five-star podcast and product. And I have a pretty quick question here. Why don't you include normalized power data in the PR chart? This past weekend during a punchy crit, I did 380 Watts normalized for five minutes. This is 20 Watts higher than my highest five minute average power on the PR chart. It seems that for road and crit racers that are very rarely putting out sustained power. So he's talking about the surgy sort of tactical racing that happens in those events, including normalized power data would be another good way to track improvement. Uh, he says, thanks so much and keep up the good work. So I feel like, uh, for most people that don't understand a- average power is utilized for most measurements of any sort of like power benchmark, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the standard it's used across the board because it's just a basic average. There's uh, it's, and it's a consistent metric. It's straightforward. Find, right. Um, maybe we can, Nate, can you explain the difference between average power and normalized power? Yeah. Normalized power would be, uh, it's Dr. Coggin, uh, invented it and it's supposed to take into account accelerations. Um, or uh, surges in power and not weight the zeros as much. So if you do average power and you stop pedaling for uh, even a couple seconds, it really pulls down that average power. So what it's supposed to be is for your normalized power, you're supposed to generally be able to do that same amount for average power. Mm -hmm. That doesn't uh, hold true for everyone. This is more like a a general thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually normalized power... I don't think I've ever seen someone do a normalized power and be like, I can do more average power than that normalized power. Yeah, never seen that. But the opposite happens a lot. Yes. They're like, I no way could I do that average power, but I, it's a nice normalized yeah. power. Yeah. yeah, because normalized power is used to estimate the total metabolic demand. Yes. Mm-hmm. So of, of surgy races and, and normalize it down to what would be the metabolic equivalent to riding a steady state effort. Yep. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, if you think about it to accelerate and then, you know, every watt that you gain, therefore thereafter mm-hmm. is tougher to, to, to get, right? So it tries to take into account all these sort of demands, like you said, Chad, the metabolic demand. Right. It's not without its flaws though. And Dr. Coggins the first to admit it. Yep. Yeah. And it's not even flawed. It's, it's what it's meant to be. And people are trying to use it for things that it's not meant to be. And that's where it, it gets a little it's, contentious. It's slightly flawed. Um, it, yeah. it, there's things called, uh, NP busters. Mm-hmm. So Pete Morris is a great example of this. He can do an hour long crit and have like a four ten normalized power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He can't hold that for 10 minutes probably. Yes. Right. But in defense of normalized power, Dr. Coggins says that normalized power is at best plus or minus 5%. Yeah. So if you were to take that very number and reduce it or, or divide it by 1.05, yeah. 
Yeah. He'd probably fall, fall pretty close to, to what his hour power for is. For an hour? No, no. Mm. Probably Pete, not for Pete. Pete is, I'm Pete is crazy. Yeah. Um, so well, this is another so, thing to know. So, so maybe he's exceptional, but. Yeah, exactly. Pete is exceptional. So if you're crazy um, anaerobic power output. And highly neuromuscularly equipped. Yep. Then your normalized power for something like a crit can be an NP buster. And Dr. Crogan talks about this all the time. Oh, it yeah. can be far um, exceed what you could do on an average power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you get a whole bunch of TSS from that because you get you derive TSS from normalized power yes. and FTP. Yeah, so you'll see like a lot of the time uh, the instruction has been from Dr. Coggin <clears throat> actually that it's, n- and I think in quotes, not to be trusted. A, those are his words, not um, to be trusted for efforts under 20 minutes. Under yeah. 20 minutes. Um, so, But the interesting thing when you look at this though is that for if you're keeping, let's just say it's you, and this is where things get a little muddy. So, so join us while we venture outside of anything that's scientific here. Uh, but uh, this is where things get a little bit muddy. But for me, I actually I keep track of normalized power, just you know, mentally speaking, for efforts under 20 minutes. Uh, and the reason that I do that, and, and I'm not comparing myself to others. I'm not comparing even one race to another that is dramatically different. That sort of a thing. But for the beginning of a mountain bike race, I feel like a lot of the time average power just doesn't tell the story. Uh, Mm. And that's a crucial point of the racing that I focus on, right? Uh, So a lot of the time it doesn't tell the story because you may have some turns or it's just so hard and the throttle gets twisted wide open every time you come out of every turn instead of just, you know, you're back at a normal wattage and you're carrying it through. So it's a... and, and because of that, I keep track and, and granted, if I say, well, this start is entirely different from this one, then it doesn't carry as much in Farino or the, it's, it's not as pertinent, but when it's a similar start, yeah, I use that, but I only use it for myself and I could be entirely wrong and I could be off base with doing it. Yeah. And it's worth stating that it's not 20 minutes. Isn't a hard cutoff. It's not like above 20 minutes. Normalized power is terrific. Yeah. It's like the longer the duration, the better the normalized power, the more representative it is of a steady state equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that with more data it just becomes better. And then on top of that too, I think it was also within uh, Dr. Coggins best interest to declare such a thing, right. To not have people using it for under 20 minutes like that. Yeah. We, uh, back in designed for. 2012 yeah. maybe or 2013. Mm. I, I read him saying that and I said, okay. <clears throat> and in the, in the software, I removed normalized power for anything under 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. There was a revolt. Uh, <laughs> I said, but Dr. Coggin said it. And everyone goes, I don't care. I want my normalized power. Because people just want to see a big number. Yeah. Well, it's, it's fun. It's, it's fun. fun. So, yeah, it is um, fun. And I, I think it's, to your point, I think it does represent like, uh, I look at a crit, I look at the first five minutes and it, it says 380. And then I look at the the next five minutes and it says 320. I'm like, oh, I went really hard in those first five minutes and it was easier in the next five minutes. Mm-hmm. Right. Even though average power might be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. th- to me, it, it does tell you a story. And as far as a uh, NP PR chart, mm-hmm. normalized power PR chart, I totally want it. Um, and <laughs> I, I know critics will say, just don't look at it if you don't want it, yeah. but I'd like to do it for, um, normalized power, power to weight and normalized power to weight. Mm. Um, cause PRs are fun. And yeah, yeah. I think it just, it, it for yourself for five minutes, like you get a five minute normalized power PR, wherever you derive your motivation, yeah. so be it. I yeah. mean, exactly. I, it can just, it can tell you too, that this race was harder than this previous race to mm-hmm. your point to the start. Yep. Still um, information to be gleaned. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and I think, then this is anecdotal, but my, my best ever, <clears throat> excuse me, my best ever hour normalized power was 381. Numbers. Right. So it's yeah. back in Nevada city. And that was, that was my, these are the glory days, right? <laughs> so that that's, nice that's plug. all the better it gets. But, <laughs> but did you have a uh, Q rings on it? 
But at the time, <laughs> but at the time, I could not convince myself that I could go out and ride anywhere, even yeah. 40 minutes at that power output. So yeah. if I apply that plus or minus 5% and I divide that 381 by 1.05, puts me down to a 363 FTP, which is legit. Yeah. I feel I feel that I, I know that I could have done long extended efforts repeatedly at that output. Yeah. So I do think there's something to that, that fiber <laughs> plus or five minus percent. You yeah. got to answer the Q-Rings question. <laughs> no. You didn't have like any oval no, rings on no, there? No, no. That was like Ooh, 2000. Okay. These are good. Nine. Uh, so the other thing with this is whenever you're looking at normalized power, I always look at the average power for the same duration. And I feel like that's a bit of a true north to utilize whenever you're comparing things um, because then you can kind of see – uh, even then, you know, it, it just helps, I guess, add a little bit of a consistent component. So then when you see a number, you make sure that you don't get too far off base uh, mm -hmm. when, when you're comparing them. But I think it's a it's a really helpful thing, especially for racers that are doing surgy efforts. Uh, I know there are plenty of people that just completely disagree with normalized power in every respect, and they just, you know, swear yeah, by I average think if, power. If they use it as it's designed to be used, there's nothing to argue. Yep, exactly right. Uh, it's got its intent and it's got its use and you can use it, uh, I guess, just with caution in certain circumstances below that 20 minute uh, mark. But uh, as for myself, I'm going to keep looking at big numbers and being happy about it. <laughs> uh, I'm sure most people listening to this are saying yeah, the same exactly. thing. Yeah, exactly. They're you know? like, oh, yeah. it looks amazing. There's yeah, nothing exactly. wrong with that. Vanity numbers. Uh, Phil says, sprinting technique has been discussed before, but I would like to know what's the right technique or what the right technique is to spin up to prepare for the sprint when to shift and if you would shift, uh, if you would shift gears and how high in Watts you should spin up before you go into an all out sprint. Uh, first things that I think of it like this, is this just gives me a headache thinking of sprinting and trying to think of all of these yeah. things. I promise you're not going to be looking at your power meter if you're, if you're sprinting anyway. So yeah. all this stuff, even if you could tie numbers to it, isn't going to benefit you. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we'll go over exactly how to do it, but he says, I found that sometimes I shift too early and get stuck at a low RPM. That's super common. Especially I see like when you have enough time to contemplate the sprint and you know when you're going to go, that sort of thing. You see a guy just, he dumps I four see gears. Uh, it's adorable because I, I, you, you see <laughs> it in the lower category races <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you know that sprint's going nowhere. Yeah. You hear that dunk, 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 and then the guy goes, sits alongside you and <laughs> yeah. he's just drilling it and not going he's anywhere. He's like 50 or like 40 RPM, 30 RPM. Yeah, Nothing's seen happening. Yeah, Many times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, remember that power is a function of the speed at which you're turning those pedals and also how hard you're pressing them. Force not is only one hard. component. You also mm -hmm. got to have a little bit of speed. Yep. Uh, he says... And then he says, and other times I spin out and have shifted two to three times and feel a bit out of control. And that's super dangerous. And I see that a lot, like in, uh, in lower categories and sprints where a person's sprinting so fast that they blow out of their pedal and nothing is worse than <laughs> blowing out of the pedal when you're sprinting, because that throws one leg down your weight forward and off to the side, almost always results in an over the bars. Best case, the pedal catches you in the back of the leg, which is incredibly painful that <laughs> happened in my last race in auburn i got oh. a, it's on video oh the person stayed up oh really yeah oh good for him but that that mm, you know how we say painful. check your bolts check your cleats people should also check their <laughs> check <cleats>. your skill <laughs> yeah exactly it says uh, i also sometimes burn out in my sprint early because my spin up to prepare for the sprint was too aggressive yeah that's totally that's very common yep. Thanks for the awesome podcast. Shout out to Minnesota, where we're finally seeing signs of spring and outdoor riding. You just jinxed it, Phil. You're going to have winter for a while more. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, the one thing that I think of with this is an effective vehicle transmission. So like ideally, when a person makes a, a transmission with a car and they're controlling things with an ECU, they're trying to make the car shift at the point at which the motor has like the most torque, the most horsepower, so that it can maintain a consistent trajectory of acceleration. Is that a par parabola? Yeah. So it's the, the, the height of the 
Exactly right. Probably. Uh, so, and you have a graph as well. Uh, it'd be fun to put humans on dinos and be able to like graph that whole thing out and to see like the torque and all that stuff. That'd be, that'd be a, a neat thing. I'm not sure how I would use it, but you can feel that when you ride your bike though. You know, just like when you're driving a car and you can feel where if you keep the throttle down, it starts to, the power starts to die off. Mm -hmm. RPMs still go up, but power starts to die off and you shift, not Nate in his electric car, but you shift to try to stay on top of that wave, so to speak. And you kind of ride that wave. So when you're on as a cyclist, it's the same thing. You want to find a point where you feel like you have the most ability to continue acceleration. And that's when you shift. Yeah, I so, like that analogy. Yeah. Because if you don't, if you basically think I need to go to hundred RPM or something like that, <clears throat> that's going to change because you might go into a situation where you have a slightly downhill tailwind sprint and you have to sprint at 115 RPM. So at that point, you just have to think once again, that can, that's going to shift a bit and you just have to shift where you feel like mm -hmm. you can maintain the same trajectory of acceleration. How do you shift while you're putting out thousand plus Watts? What do you do to go to the car analogy? I think of a clutch in the sense that, you know, you don't actually apply a clutch, but you reduce the power, so to ever speak, so slightly. ever so slightly. Yeah. Um, you have to, otherwise you get into a situation where if you're just pushing down and you're trying to grab gears, it's going to jump or you gotta say, if you've, if you've never had, <clears throat> excuse me, if you've never had SRAM shifters, the, mm -hmm. the, the shift mechanism is the greatest thing ever. Yeah. You can grab the little lever and hold it to your bar. So you're, you're still gripping your bars, but that lever is in your grip. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's very different. Shimano doesn't offer an equivalent, do they? No, I don't no. think so. And all you do is basically cock your wrist. So you don't even, you, you lose no leverage whatsoever. Yeah. It's really quite slick. Oh, I've never. Yeah. Oh awesome. yeah. Never you haven't played that. with that? That's why their levers. No. Well, you back. can't with electronic, but no, with, but when, with when mechanical. I, yeah. I, it's, I've it's never the, known that. It's the greatest thing ever. So the, the little paddle, I, I've seen you it, actually it comes in. You actually scoop it in and, and hold, hold it, it, it to the bar. So you're still gripping the bar yeah. just as you would. Mind blown. And, and you just you, give it a little yeah. kick with your hand. Yep. You it's, roll in. It's, it's magic. Awesome. Uh, you can also install sprint shifters if you have DI2 or if you mm -hmm. have VTAP, you can install blips so that they're right there by your thumbs and yep. you're in the drops, uh, that sort of a thing. It's all really, but there is a bit of a deload. So, so totally. I mean, you're on it as hard as you can go and you anticipate that shift and you understand the timing of your gears, which is going to lead me to my final point, which is practice, mm. practice, practice. <laughs> and, and you time it such that you let up just a bit, allow the gear to catch, and then you're back on it. Yep. I mean, it's, it's a fraction of a second, but it has to be really tightly orchestrated. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Linder from, uh, NorCal cycling videos on YouTube, really great videos. He's a great sprinter mm -hmm. wins P one, two races. Mm -hmm. And he actually, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, I think he sits down to mm -hmm. shift up. And then he, he gets back up to uh, sprint. So it kind of does it in two parts then. Yeah. He'll like sprint and then he'll, he'll sit down for a second and shift and then get back up. I think because it can be super scary when it yeah. doesn't catch can be, and yeah. it can be uh, dangerous. And, and at times I'm sure he shifts out of the saddle yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, you gotta, you, you gotta know? trust your drivetrain though. And you gotta, mm -hmm. and, and in this day and age where we're constantly switching, I mean, we're going from electronic to mechanical, Shimano to SRAM to, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you got, you have to know your equipment quite well, which again, practice, practice, practice. And when you do practice it, I would say don't practice it at max wattage at first. You can figure out where this ideal torque value yeah. or shift point sits without sprints, going crazy hard. Speed sprint or leg speed sprints. Yeah. Like, you know, do them at like 70%, 80% of what your max out max sprint would be. Mm -hmm. And that way it reduces some of the danger that allows you to not, you know, jam your chain when you're shifting down. And it's a good way. You'll still be able to feel that. And you'll be like, okay, if I shift here, I feel like it doesn't, isn't a huge jump in cadence. And I still continue to accelerate. I don't decelerate or because I'm spinning too fast or decelerate because I'm just spinning too and slow. Then, and then outside of the technique itself, you also have to analyze what, <clears throat> what you're, uh, where your sprinting strengths and weaknesses are, or yeah. limiters, really. Um, so, you know, do you jump well? Do you establish? Do you, do what you do you mean that, by that? 
So your initial acceleration, mm -hmm. do you, I mean, can you cover a wheel quickly? Can you get away from the rider who's on your wheel? Can you just initiate that sprint in a really fast manner and get that, get an initial jump? Some riders can, some riders simply can't muster it. They don't have the neuromuscular capabilities. Mm -hmm. What's your leg speed like? Do you spin out at a hundred before you start bouncing around? Can you wind it up to 130? Mm -hmm. I mean, then what are your force capabilities? Can you stomp a big gear or do you have to wind it up? Do you need to rely on leg speed? Yep. And then based on how all those things uh, stack up to one another, you can decide what needs to be trained or how you're going to sprint. Yeah. yeah. And some sprints force you into a particular type of sprint too. So if you're heading yep. up, you're sprinting on a 3% grade at the end of a course or at the end of a, a long ride, leg speed is going to be far more important than your force. Well, no, I won't say no. far more important, but yep. it shifts those demands a bit. So yeah. now you have to know if I, if I struggle winding up or applying big force to the pedals on a flat section, I'm not mm -hmm. gonna be able to do it on a two or 3% grade unless I, you know, use my gears. Yeah, of I, course. Either way, the, the 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 course itself can also dictate how you're going to sprint. Absolutely. If it's a super steep little finish, and but it's still a sprint finish, which absolutely can happen, then uh, you know it changes things. But I feel like this is the importance of practicing, and sprinting is something you should absolutely practice. Absolutely. It's really fun to practice too. Uh, to, you know, sprint with your friends, that sort of a stuff. It's a, it's a cool thing to do. Uh, I, I also, I recommend when you're sprinting and you're practicing sprinting, <clears throat> don't just practice what you feel like is the best sprint, but make sure that you're practicing outside of your comfort zone. Like you said, with different cadence ranges or at different starting speeds, that sort of a stuff, uh, practice those sort of things. So then whenever a race, whatever a race throws at you, you're ready for it. Um, I think that we're going to be starting yes, to do sprint practice on Wednesdays here. I think so. That'll be fun. Yeah, that'll be That's really today. fun. today. It is today. I wasn't planning on doing it today. No, I'm not planning. It's like rainy, snowy, yeah, the whole deal. Uh, next one is from Stefan. He says, uh, he has a question about training with allergies, which is appropriate. Uh, down there in LA this weekend, tons of, of, of red eyes and, and sneezing folks. He says, as spring comes closer, so does allergy season. I've got all kinds of pollen allergies and allergy-induced asthma. So uh, he says, so I have several periods each time of year when training is very difficult to get by. I usually just tone down both frequency and the intensity and do a sweet spot workout when time and body allows the allergies and asthma make the VO two max efforts or VO two efforts. He says extremely hard and also recovery is a lot harder than normal. He says, when I'm in season, I simply cannot, or when I'm in these seasons, I simply cannot get enough sleep. I follow all the normal advice with people or for people with allergies, but those are aimed at everyday life. I'm wondering what science says about the pure training and physiology within seasons. I talked to science. Yeah. <laughs> chat, chat has science. Asked, on the you guys are we, buddies. Had, we had a long discussion on <laughs> yeah. this one. Um, so he asked a few questions. I'll run through those and kind of set the scene, Chad, for, for you to take this one. He says, number one, do I risk anything by doing hard sessions in an allergy season? Number two, do I get gains from doing hard efforts or is sweet spot best to stick to during these seasons? Number three, should I aim for quality and quantity or just stay alive? Cool. And if you'll <laughs> remind me to revisit those at the end of this, because I'm not entirely sure I, I fully answered them. I, I went down a, a avenue that I didn't anticipate based on a study that, that just yeah. surfaced that Nate pointed, pointed let's, out. Let's go into the rabbit hole. We're let's okay with it. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Chad. <clears throat> so I'm going to make a big guess. And if this guess is wrong, then this is kind of a waste <laughs> of everybody's time or at least, at least, uh, Stefan's time. Yeah. Um, I'm going to guess that you're using antihistamines. Yeah. So that, that's, that's the, uh, the understanding under which I'm working right now. Okay. So antihistamines, um, first let's talk about what histamine is. So histamine is a a hormone or a neurotransmitter that is released as part of the inflammatory response. Um, the cells that produce them are called mast cells. They're in your bone marrow. They're filled with basophil granules, which is a type of white, uh, white blood cell. Mm. So, so we're talking about immune defense here. 
and they're released in response to some sort of some, some sort of slight on the system, some disruption from homeostasis. In this case, an allergic uh, allergic symptoms due to whatever bee mm -hmm. pollen or what is it pollen. You got me, Shay. Thanks. Yeah. I don't know what, what are people typically allergic to. Yeah, yeah. pollen, dander, pollen, dust, dander, dander, mold. Dust. Okay, yeah. there we go. Yeah. Good examples. Okay, so what histamine does is it increases the permeability of your capillaries to, to white blood cells. So the white blood cells can exit them and, and engage the pathogens. Mm. So it's just part of the, again, the immune response. Okay. Exercise also produces histamines. And this is the study that Nate sh shared with me, which I found quite interesting. So it's almost as if, as if exercise is perceived as some sort of... Um, allergic uh, slight to the system. I mean, it is a disruption from homeostasis, so it does make sense, but mm -hmm. this happens locally. It happens in the muscle. Hmm. So it's not a central reaction so much as a, a peripheral or a very narrow one. Hmm. So histamine and exercise, the the, exor uh, the uh, study that I'm talking about is uh, Luttrell and Hallowell. Just, just, just surfaced 2019, and I think it's going to be the beginning of more research on this matter because I don't think there's a heck of a lot prior to this. Hmm. So it's really exciting, a really exciting area to dive into. Hmm. Um, so they term histamine as a transducer for exercise responses, not okay. a term I'm super comfortable with. So it's basically just saying it induces molecular changes, put more simply stimulates adaptations. Okay. So antihistamines, the other side of it, you know, trying to negate the effect of histamines in this study modified more than 25% of the gene response. So it had a bit of big effect on what the histamines are trying to do. Um, th and they termed this histamine release as a fundamental exercise response with broad ranging effects in exercising muscle. Mm. So, so big deal, fundamental and broad ranging within the muscle itself. And what, what are those effects in particular? Post-exercise vasodilation, hyperemia, and in turn hypotension. So basically the blood vessel walls are getting bigger, which means more blood is distributed to the muscle. Mm. And because of that, there's a decline in blood pressure. So post-workout, when you, you know, stand up quickly, this could have some, this could be part of the reason behind that lightheadedness you feel. Mm. Um, and then also increases on post-exercise glucose delivery and uptake. I mean, if we're getting more blood to the muscle, it makes sense that more nutrients can be delivered, assuming we're ingesting those nutrients. Yeah, yeah. That makes and then sense. they they mentioned that there are certain non vascular vascular effects too, but I didn't delve into that too much. But there's there's also increased blood flow and glucose delivery during prolonged exercise. So histamine's doing a job while you're while you're working within the muscle itself. Hmm. So this paracrine signaling, as it's termed, which means it's the cells that are, are close to one another. Um, when when you block that with antihistamines, you're blunting some of these histamine related signals. So we're hmm. actually it's, it's just another one of those. Uh, situations where we're using something to blunt the adaptation that our body wants to achieve by intervening with, you know, certain over-the-counter remedies in this case. I had no clue about all this stuff. Neither did I. Until I, yesterday. I, I, I did. I, yeah. <laughs> so I've been taking antihistamines for about two years because of this kind of stuff. It's, yeah. it's kind of like taking antioxidants right after your workout. It yeah. blunts the response your body naturally has. That's, that's part of the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. So that's, so that's like the downstream issue. That's, that's, those are the effects that we're trying to achieve with training. Some of them are being negated or, or toned down because we're taking antihistamines, which we think, you know, we should, we're having an allergic reaction. Hmm. So the body makes histamines, right? And we can also, um, get them through food and, and a lot of foods actually contain either contain them or liberate them. Hmm. So liberate them from the mast cells or they actually are in the food themselves. And this is a bummer of a list too. Well, actually, no, it's not. It's, <laughs> it, it's just saying Maybe you're having an allergic reaction because of something that's floating around in the air, some allergens, some some uh, air contaminants. Maybe it's in your diet. So here's some things to consider. Um, soy and soy sauce is probably the most common dietary source of histamines. Mm. But then also pretty much anything fermented. So dairy. 
which would be you know, fermented dairies, cheese, yogurt, sour cream, kefir, that sort of things. Fruits and vegetables like sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, pickles. Uh, for fermented or cured meats like sausage and salami and fermented drinks like uh, kombucha, wine, beer, champagne. So basically any alcoholic beverage, really. So again, <laughs> might not just be air contaminants. So also look at your diet. Consider, am I having this allergic reaction because of something that's floating around in the air? Or maybe I can modify my diet and avoid this whole allergic reaction. So you might be bringing in too many histamines through your diet and thusly actually having a somewhat similar effect. Yeah, yeah exactly. I guess when I... Step back from the science, it all kind of makes sense, I guess, really, you know, when you think about it. Uh, so I guess when you look at this, how does it, how does it affect you afterward? I guess when we're looking at like recovery. Yeah. So, so the recovery side of things, he mentioned that he has a hard time recovering. Yeah. Um, histamines. So, so first off, look at the sleep. Histamines um, are part of the sleep-wake regulation in particular, the wake part of the regulation. They, they lend to alertness. So when you take antihistamines and you blunt the, the, the wake part of the mm -hmm. sleep wake regulation. Well, you're going to be groggy, sleepy all the time. So could very well be that that's the, that's the issue with why he wants to sleep all day long. Um, and then I talked about the, the glucose delivery tied to the, you know, greater blood flow and, and, and the vasodilation that, that replenishes muscle stores. Mm -hmm. So if you're denying some of that, there, there's an issue. And then the capillary permeability that, that takes place that we blunt by taking antihistamines. If we don't take those, then that, um, the cells, when they become more, uh, more permeable, the macrophages are the, the, the cells that the scavenge the, the waste. Yeah. And then the leukocytes can actually get into the muscle bed and enhance recovery. I mean, that's part of the recovery process, which is again, blunted mm -hmm. with antihistamines. Wow. Antihistamines sound really bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, if you don't need them, don't take them. If you do take them, then you got to understand there's going to be side effects or effects, direct effects. How does it affect, like, when we're talking about, like, uh, any sort of markers that you would measure, like, on the bike? Well, see, on, like, in, like, the bike. Like, in this case, this is this is straightforward. This doesn't have to do with histamines, antihistamines. All that aside, if you get out there and you can't breathe as well, you're effectively reducing your VO2 or your mm -hmm. VO2 max. So, if, if you're operating at a 60 mil per per kilogram per minute VO2 max. So your VO2 max is 60 and you go out there with reduced lung capacity for whatever reason, inflammation or, or otherwise, bronchial spasm, doesn't matter. So now you're working with a 50 or a 40. Obviously performance is gonna tank. It's akin to or riding at altitude without being acclimatized. It sounds so bad for people with allergies, right? It's, <laughs> it's no good. It is, yeah. So how can you expect to be performing at your top level if yeah. you're suffering from allergies. Yeah, yeah. And probably taking antihistamines. So what would you, what should you do if you're in this position? Yeah, this is- Per, I, per your advice. I, I, wish I, had, I wish I had better advice on this, but first off, you gotta know your triggers because if you're addressing asthma versus allergies versus allergy-induced asthma, they're different courses of action. So you might be missing the target. Mm. So try to get clear on that. And then if at all viable, stop taking antihistamines and then look at your diet and see if, if uh, any of those histamines are coming from your diet. That's, that's, we covered that already. Yeah, and yeah. then if at all possible, or if you can't remove, uh, any, stop taking the antihistamines and just dial down the workload, just accept you're not going to be able to perform at your highest level that day. Yeah. And my advice also would be don't compete. Don't put yourself in a position where you're going to be, uh, forced into a situation of performing at a high level only to be disappointed or I don't know, give yourself an asthma attack or Allergy related. Yeah. It's tough for some people because I feel like, Nate, you experience allergies like, for a good portion of the year. Crazy, yeah. And so I have tips. Okay. I've, oh, I've yeah, you've been through this. trying to get around this. And I've had the experience where I'm allergic to lots of stuff, but in the fall when we have sagebrush, there's some there's a race, a triathlon here. I've always performed very poorly in this. Yeah, experience what you talked about, Chad. Your FTP is suddenly forty watts lower. Yeah. You're trying to pace at the highway 
it's 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 very frustrating. Yeah. So here's what I do. Um, I want to talk to your doctor, of course, right? Yes. And um, we're not telling you not to take antihistamines. Um, but the okay, so um, I stop personally taking antihistamines, and what I do is I take topical stuff or um, not systemic stuff. So. For the nose, I like Flonase. Um, there's like Nasacort, but uh, it's like a steroid spray that you put in your nose. Okay. There's prescription ones that work even better. There's one, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's pretty much, it's Flonase and a um, antihistamine, but it only goes into mm -hmm. your sinuses. So it does, you don't get the same thing that you would get from like Allegra or Claritin or Benadryl. Got um, it. And then uh, for eyes, uh, I used to get really bad itchy eyes and there are some over-the-counter eye drops mm -hmm. that are amazing. And I believe um, there's prescription ones too. I, I'm sorry, I forgot. Naficon A, I think, is one of the eye drops. And then Patinol. I hope in the forum, if I'm getting these names wrong, doctors, please type them in. Yeah. Is another amazing one to make your eyes feel really good. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third thing I've, I've been doing, um, I've done this a few times, is uh, uh, I call them allergy shots, but they're. Uh, uh, I forget the name now too. I can't, I'm horrible. Uh, am aminotherapy. Okay. So what they do is they yeah, do a yeah. skin test on your arm mm -hmm. and they see how you re react to um, different uh, allergens. And then they make a little vial with those allergens in it and you get shots um, up to three times a week with those allergens in it and they slowly build it up so that you start to not get a reaction from those allergens. So three weeks, do you continue to get them three times a week? Um, after you get ever? to a certain level, you could do it once a month, okay. but then you pretty much do it forever or five years. People have told me different things. Wow. Um, so in, in my, and what, what sort of specialist helps you with this? Uh, an allergist. allergist. And that's an MD. Yep. Yeah, okay. Allergist. Uh, my doctor is an uh, allergy and immunotherapy because it's, it's the same kind of like uh, the immune system and allergies are, as we were, as you just read, mm -hmm. it's like the same thing. Tied pretty closely. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done it actually three times in my life, and I've never sustained it for the five years at a time. But I've also gotten lots of, um, they call them like skin tests or skin prick tests for yeah. allergies. And, uh, you know, when I was maybe 14, 15, when I first got it, I'd get these huge welts. So the nurse is like, oh, my God, we need to stop this right <laughs> yeah. now. I just got another one at the Mayo Clinic. And some of the things I used to be allergic to, I'm not allergic to anymore. Way to go, Nate. Exactly. Way to so, go, Nate's body. Doctors. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the, it, it, yeah. Uh, it does reduce it. Um, what the doctors say is usually, usually people get 80% relief, never 100%. But I find with that, with the like the Flonase and eye drops occasionally, um, I can get by during the day. Mm. Um, I also, to the point here, when I do a really hard workout, like yesterday I did a hard, hard one, um, the next day I feel like I'm sneezing more. Uh, and allergic, like I'm more sensitive. And mm. I don't know if that's just in my brain or if it has to do with this, but I, I definitely feel more sensitive to allergies the day after a hard workout. Yeah. So I guess going back to his original questions, I think all three of them, it kind of boils down to the same thing that most actually that an, that an average athlete would be going through that doesn't experience this, although average might be wrong because I bet a lot of people do experience some, this to some degree. Yeah. You're really trying to balance recovery and work and making sure that you're absorbing the amount of work that you can do. Yeah, and the question specifically, do I risk anything by doing hard sessions in an allergy season? I don't think so. I, I, nothing nothing pointed to that, but I don't know that you can really do hard sessions. I mean, yeah. and it might be hard in terms of perceived exertion, but how hard you're actually working is, is vastly limited. Yeah, and, and I, would, I, I think that, that, that in some respects will kind of take care of itself on high pollen days. I bet you won't be able to do You just very won't much. be able to. You won't be able to rise the occasion. Indoor so, training. 
yep. nice HEPA filter. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. And then yes, change do I... out your filters quick, like frequently in your house. Yeah. That's one thing that I think yeah. a lot of people may not yeah. do. So mm-hmm. it can really help with that. Makes sense. And then do I get gains from doing hard efforts or as long as you're, and I think the answer there, right, Chad, is as if long you can as do you hard can efforts. recover from them. Well, or if you can do them in the first place. I mean, yep. if you can't provide the stimulus, if the, if the hard efforts just feel hard, but aren't actually qualifying as hard based on what your body can do in a fully recovered state or non-allergic uh, uh, state, yeah. Then yeah, but otherwise, if you can, I think sweet spots are really pretty great alternative considering you don't really ratchet your breathing up that high. So you can probably work it. I mean, we're talking about 90% of, of you know threshold. That seems like a pretty good place to end up yeah. in, in lieu of what was going to be a hard training session. Yeah. Uh, so Ready to move on to Moshe's question? No, I have another tip. Oh, you do? This is a big one. Mm. So sinus rinses. Um, that's another thing that you just need to do. They're kind of a pain. And I've bought in all the sinus stuff. There's like the... the the little bottle, that's actually, I think, the best and the most cost-effective. I bought the Navage and the Sinugator, hmm. uh, which are just all crazy. Neti, neti pots? Yeah, they're yeah. just all neti pots, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think the plastic squeezable bottle, it's the cheapest, and you can do it. Mm. When you do it, make sure you use filtered water because yeah, people in, uh, I think it was like Alabama, but there are some amoebas in some water that Ooh. it's fine to drink, but if they go in your nasal, nasal passage, they go into your brain, and there's no cure, you're dead in like four days. What? Yep. That's terrifying. So yeah. whenever you do it... <laughs> Distilled water. Make Imagine, sure you use, yeah, distilled or... If you made somebody laugh when they were drinking that water, you could have... Oh, gosh. I don't, yeah, so it's, <laughs> it's usually in climates that are... Uh, I mean, just expect it's everywhere, but it's in climates with... They're getting water out of lakes that's really hot and yeah. the amoebas grow in it, but mm-hmm. um, it Oof. scares the death out of me. Yeah, distilled water distilled. is the very best one to use. Yeah. Uh, but that you do that twice a day. That really helps. So you, you mm-hmm. rinse that out. You get it all clean, and then you do your flonase after that, mm-hmm. and uh, that can or whatever works for you. Um, it, it like it's amazing mm-hmm. how clearing that out can make you feel better. Awesome, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moshe's question: He says, "I have two A races for the upcoming year: a 30 KTT in early April and an Ironman in mid July." This actually isn't too uncommon. This sort of a thing where a person has an Ironman and then prior to it, they have like a TT or some sort of shorter try. Yeah, those like are that. two dis- disciplines that play nice together too. Yep. He says, I will have enough time for a complete base build specialty, then rebuild and specialty for these plants, which is basically ideal. He has a really good setup. Mm-hmm. I plan to follow the low volume plans with extra, he says, bike TSS fillers. So he says, uh, um, so he runs through his plans here and we can run through it. Uh, so he runs through, let's come back to that actually. Yeah. You want to, okay. Sounds good. So he says, my question to the point is which base plan to follow. If I'm peaking for two different disciplines, sweet spot base or full distance base. And in general does base specificity. And he says that in quotes, does that matter? I'll be coming into the start of the season with a very high aerobic base established over the summer. And he mentions that he biked for charity across America and the TSS fillers can be tacked on to the longer workouts to help maintain that. Lastly, I plan to follow the full distance base swim, run a uh, swim and run workouts twice throughout the first base build specialty cycle, uh, then during the rebuild and build and specialty. So he says, uh, oh, and then he also says a listen on Spotify, but iTunes or, but installed iTunes a while back just to give a five-star rating. Oh, Thanks. There we go. Thank Thanks, you. man. So I think this comes down to, in one respect, priorities, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't want to, you don't want to mix those around. And in this case, it, I mean, it really seems like the priority would be the Ironman race. It has to be. Yeah. I mean, you can't just train for a 40K TT and then go out and expect to not just <laughs> suffer like a dog over the course of a, <laughs> yeah. an Ironman. Yeah. Let's go try that, Chad. Sounds fun, huh? Yeah. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I think <laughs> it's safe to, to safe to assume that Moshi is probably prior uh, probably sounds like he's already prioritizing the triathlon because he's sure. addressing it in the basin build even yep. with focus on the mm-hmm. on the TT. Um, but when it comes to the Ironman itself, really all you need is base fitness. So I would just prioritize base above all else, regardless mm-hmm. of of the focus. Um, and what you're talking about there is you don't you don't need to be working on the the short sort of. Uh, the, the, the you, don't, you don't actually blade, have to get so any to more specific than, than base. If yeah. that's all you had time for, it just so happens he's got time to do everything, which is fantastic. But right. really, if you just carried base fitness into an Ironman triathlon, you'd, you'd survive it. Yeah. But you go and try to specialize for it and just focus on speed work or you know pick a specialty <laughs> plan and then dive right into it. I, I, I don't think I could get behind that recommendation. Got it. Yeah. So there's more to be gained, of course, <laughs> as you go through base build and specialty for full distance Ironman. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But what we're really talking about is the, the building blocks to get you through that sort of a thing. Base fitness has a huge influence versus somebody like a crit racer, for example, who's going through that, like a kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. But even crit racers need a massive aerobic base too, of course. especially depending on the level they're at which they race. But what's interesting is I, I just pieced together the, the plan of attack that I would recommend to Moshi, not even looking at what I'm assuming. He, yeah. Yeah. yeah he, that he put in, um, and it was just the same. So full distance base mm-hmm. and then into sustained build and then 40 K TT as your specialty and then rebuild using full distance build and full distance specialty. I mean, again, putting proper prioritization on the triathlon and just kind of come what may with the, with the bike, but come what may you're doing an entire specialty plan dedicated to this one thirty K event. So yeah. I think he's got the time and again, they, they overlap nicely that the demands of each event. I'm confused. Full distance <laughs> base. That's going to have swim and runs. Sustained build, no swim and runs, 40K TT, no think, swim and runs. No, but I think he said he's yeah, still he's going to be, be doing the... He's going to be touching in and doing the swims and runs from that. He's going to be copying those in basically is his okay. plan. So just switching out the bike workout. Sure. So I feel like we need to step back and simplify this because we get this yeah, question super a ton. So of, of a triathlete that wants to prep for cycling or do a cycling event prior or mm-hmm. a triathlete that's doing full distance and they want to do a sprint or an Olympic, something like that. So... Number one, stepping back again, it's priority. You have to decide which event matters most. When you decide which event matters most, you have to understand that that's where your trajectory should lead you to. Uh, You can then, if you have the liberty of having extra time, you might be able to do actually some specific building for that inner, for that first event that you're going to do. But once again, you don't want to compromise what you're going to, what your main priority is. And I feel like that's a common thing that I see with a lot of people asking these sort of questions are like, but I've got a sprint try and it's two weeks before a full distance Ironman. It's like, well, don't stop what you're doing for your full distance race to focus on the sprint try. Let your fitness be what it is when you go through that sprint try but just focus, keep, you know, keep the eye on the prize, so to speak. And uh, when you're talking about separating things down and you're just going to be doing bike focused stuff for a period of time, just make sure that you're keeping in mind the fact that if you aren't spending time swimming and running, that sort of a thing, you can't expect those to get better in any way. Uh, that's just how it works, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, those are going to drop off to some degree and the bike can be better, that sort of a thing. But I don't think that it's necessarily a great idea if you're in relative close proximity to your full distance Ironman to just stop doing the other two distances. No, well, she's got the luxury of time here mm-hmm. too, though. And there is, I mean, you quoted or your term base specificity there. That's, that's kind of a real thing considering how different, like the traditional base versus the sweet spot base versus even the triathlon base plans are. Mm-hmm. So they are, there is a, a, a certain level of specificity to each of those base plans. Sure. So it's, it's maybe not an actual term in use, but the idea is solid. 
Yeah. Yeah. Not all bass is created perfectly equal. Like no, that. no, it's, it's even in the bass phase, it still has some, some bit of specificity. Yeah. We're actually working right now on some articles that will be coming out. That'll be guiding triathletes through this, this sort of thing on, on wh how, which plans to pick for which events, uh, and have different principles that can guide you. So then you can make the right decisions on that sort of a thing. Uh, the one thing that I would say though, for a lot of multi-sport athletes, they, um, I think that a lot of the time it's easy to think that because they have the three disciplines that it's entirely exceptional and it takes an entirely unique approach, but the same principles of prioritization of making sure that you stick to whichever event matters most. And the same thing of making sure that you're well prepared for whatever that event is, those should be the main guiding principles. And then the rest can fit in, even if you're multi-sport or if you're just a single sport, uh, athlete and anything in between, of course. So, uh, Jesse's question says, Hi, Trainer Road. I really appreciate the quality of your training products and the very applicable and entertaining tips and discussions on the podcast. Thanks, Jesse. That's very kind. Uh, my question is about how to get enough calories while eating and in quotes clean. I ate a fair amount of greens and cruciferous vegetables, about 10 to 12 cups a day, oatmeal, a couple sweet potatoes, bananas, apples, berries, nuts, and seeds, and a small amount of dairy. These account for about 1800 calories of my daily goal of 2,800 calories on days. I eat meat. I get much closer to my goal. My biggest problem is feeling, or he says, I feel is that the high amount of fiber in my diet around 50 to 60 grams a day causes me to feel too full to keep eating early in the day. I feel good during my workouts, but I get very hungry after, and at least a couple days a week, I'll be pulled to the local fast food restaurant four blocks away and I'll eat like the Manchurian candidate. He says, oh <laughs> uh, so he says, I can repeat to myself that this will not help my cycling goals as I'm sitting in the drive through and I still order the burger and fries. But would adding more fat and protein early in the day help to reduce cravings at the end of the day? Any tips to avoid processed food and deal with cravings would be very appreciated. Thanks. Jesse. This is the, like the dieters conundrum. Yeah. yeah. Is yeah. that you eat too little and then you get hit with a, uh, a craving yes. and it does more damage than if you would have eaten more good food the whole time. Mm -hmm. And cravings are powerful things too. And, and they're, they're physiologically driven. So it's not just psychological. I mean, your body does need certain things and it communicates pretty tightly with the mind to make <laughs> yes, you get those things. <laughs> At times quite loud. Yeah. Uh, just to uh, help people understand 10 to 12 cups a day of, of cruciferous vegetables and greens, that's a lot. That's really hard to eat for the, an average person, uh -huh. um, certainly far away from the uh, traditional diet that we experience in this country in, in the United States, but that's a lot of food. Mm -hmm. So what he's talking about is he actually fills up, he feels full and he doesn't really want to eat because he's taking in so much food. Uh, but he also, it's not exactly calorie dense and he finds yeah, himself. So, so what's like a, a bummer about this is he's eating so well, but he's actually really kind of trending toward the whole LEA. I, these are acronyms you've probably seen. I just want to explain what they are. Yeah. LEA is a, a lack of low energy availability yeah. so, or lack of energy availability. Now I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but, but basically it's part of the, what was termed the female athlete triad where you had the, the low energy availability, menstrual dysfunction and low bone de mineral density. Mm -hmm. So this was all aimed at females, but they realized, well, this definitely applies to men too, obviously not the menstrual cycle part of it, but the, the not getting enough food and, and, and they termed it, they coined a new term, which is now reds, which is relative energy deficiency in sports. It, which, which is just a mismatch in how much you're eating and how much you're doing. So if you're not taking in enough calories to support the amount of work you're doing, the, you know, the wheels start to come off the wagon. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it can have pretty lasting impacts. I mean, it alters your metabolism, menstrual function in women, affects your bone health, affects protein synthesis, affects cardiovascular health and psychological health. Yeah. 
So it, it's it's absolutely worth address uh, worth paying attention to. It doesn't just affect women, obviously it affects men too, and it's prominent in in endurance athletes. It's all over the place. It's really hard for us to to match the caloric expenditure, especially when you're eating like this, and and performance starts to deteriorate. Your health starts to deteriorate. I mean, there, there are real impacts to it. Yeah. This is something that I've noticed too, uh, when I'm eating like, you know, at the most healthy range, that sort of a thing. Uh, well, actually I'm going to just take a step back and Nate, it's something that you and I have realized. So I, I count my macros and I keep track of those with my fitness pal. It's really tough to balance a lot of the time hitting your caloric goals and then also hitting your macro goals. Like that's something that a lot of people perhaps don't realize. And I've found that a lot of the time, uh, so, you know, when we talk about taking in fat, I feel like fat for me personally covers the satiation side of things. A lot of the time, if I feel like it kind of, it makes me feel a little bit more full. And if I have a day where I'm very low on fat, I could eat the entire bucket of yeah, carrots. It metabolizes slowly. I mean, it's in your system for quite, quite a long time. Yeah. It's very calorie dense. And I feel like I could eat an entire bucket of carrots and I feel very full, but I still feel like yeah. starved in certain regards. It's low caloric sense. density. So even though he's eating a lot of food and I mean, I'm looking through this list, got oatmeal, bananas, apples, berries, um, the nuts and the seeds and the sweet potatoes, those carry a fair amount of, mm -hmm. of more sustaining calories. But if most of your diet's coming from stuff that just doesn't pack much more than fiber and water, yeah, then it's going to be really hard to meet that 2,800 calorie per day goal. And I've found that it's really hard to manage energy levels. If you find yourself in that sort of situation, um, Nate, what, so you, you're the champion of eating as we know. Uh, cat one eater, <laughs> cat one eater. Uh, what do you, what have you found along this that could help in this case that could help Jesse? Yeah. I totally experienced the same thing, yeah. um, where you eat kind of the clean stuff all day. And then it, if you don't eat enough of it, you want to, you have cravings for other stuff. Yeah. You just so, pull into in and out on the way home instead. Yeah. It, what I have to do is <laughs> it sounds crazy. You got to eat more. So, um, because really you're like, he said, 1800 calories. If you're doing thousand calorie workouts and you eat 1800 calories a day, yeah, that's 800 calories. And we don't even know what type of athlete Jesse is. Or I mean, size or, yeah, exactly. Yep. So even that 2800 calories may be a goal, but it may not be, even that may not be sufficient depending on the workload. Mm -hmm. So one thing to do is like eat early in the morning. Like don't wait. I think on podcast days, we don't eat for like three or four hours. Yeah. Cause that just gives great. you more time to eat. Um, and then I do the, when I am the best at this is I do snacks in between of like an apple or vegetables. Like you got to keep, you got to keep up on it in order to get enough calories, especially doing something big. And the other part of it is on the bike, like eat way more. You said you're hungry after the bike. I would try to work towards that 100 grams of carbs per hour and see if you can do that and see if that then fills in a whole bunch of calories because your two hour workout was, was it 800 calories you could drink, mm -hmm. um, that I mean, or eat, that's a lot. Um, yeah. and if, and I'm uh, not everyone can do that. So build towards it, but that, that really helps. And then also fat, um, when I eliminated dairy from my diet, like I, I had more cravings. So then I would have more, um, avocado and more nuts and more olive oil on my salad. Um, th those kind of things, everyone, I, hopefully everyone knows that the fat can really make you feel full. It can Although satiate it, you, but it's, it doesn't it do much in terms of energy stores. So I mean, know? it may, may fill you up and it's very calorie dense, but in terms of nutrient dense and the type of nutrients we need as endurance athletes, nah, there's, I mean, it's not carbohydrate. Yeah. We just want to uh, fix the getting pulled to burgers and fries. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's Reduce and, that. And two, you want to not eat, um, you just have to be aware of it. Cause it's so easy to like pour olive oil out of the bottle 
and not realize you just put 500, 600 calories. Yeah. Chad, right? Chad's just like, Ooh. I, I dumped that stuff on. Yeah, it can be, it can be a lot. Um, yeah. I, I bet you, Chad, you could, you could eat a thousand calories of olive oil on your food and be happy about it. I honestly don't know what the caloric breakdown See? is of, of the amount I put on. Like, mm-hmm. I'll pour it into a cup and measure it once. Here's yeah. my stance on that. I feel like life is far too short to be skimping on dressing on the salad for me if I'm going to be eating a salad. Um, so, but I, I know roughly, I know how much fat is in the, is in dressing that sort of stuff. And I build out my day appropriately as a result to allow for that sort of a thing. Um, I think that there's, there's two parts to this. There's the physical cravings that you're getting, but like you said, it's, it's physical and it's psychological too. Like it's, it's, it's a part of us. Mm-hmm. And there's, if you look in the endurance diet, uh, this is a book that we've talked about plenty of times. Matt Fitzgerald really preaches really a diet that's balanced, that a person's taking a lot of things, but he talks about the fact that when athletes adhere to something that's so strict and it deprives them of the things that they really want, that sort of a thing. And I wonder if many times it's just because they're in a situation where they aren't breaking down the macros correctly. They don't have enough fat, something like that. They have these cravings. And he talks about the fact that, uh, I forget the term, but there's actually a term for it. It's basically like recession, basically where you end up dropping back into these bad habits and they just binge and it's extremely unhealthy. Yeah. Regression, forgive me. And they end up going through this situation where, you know, it ends up pushing you further down a road. You feel terrible about yourself. It's a tricky thing. Like eating healthy is, is, is great. But at the same time, something that Matt Fitzgerald talks about in that book is you can't deprive yourself of, of the, the, the indulgences all the time. You have to allow yourself to give into those, not only, you know, physically, it's, it's nice to get those things every once in a while, but also psychologically, it's extremely helpful. So there's kind of that, that other side of this for sure. Like you said, Chad, with reds, you know, psychological health is something that definitely affects this. Yeah. I mean, you can't just look at it in terms of, I need 2,800 calories. You also have to look at the composition of those calories. It's pretty incredibly important. Yeah. So especially considering, you know, he's an endurance athlete of some type which means yeah. he's, he's exerting a lot of stress on the body physically, and that ha- needs to be uh, matched with uh, intake. Jesse, too, um, you talk about meat. It's easy to get there. Uh, you could do fish, um, especially something like salmon. Uh, yeah, it has, fish is very satiating. Yeah, but it also has omega-3s in it, and omega-3s reduce inflammation mm-hmm. but don't have the blunting effect that, like, um, antioxidants do for performance increases. So you, uh, I, I think I, I take it, but, uh, omega threes every day. And then if it's on the menu, a salmon or a tuna, um, tuna is very low fat compared to salmon. Salmon is crazy high fat compared to, but, but yeah. just some sort of fish. Um, and I, I like eating that rather than like a red meat or, or even like a chicken. Yeah. Yeah. Luke's question. Yep. Last one. Luke says, Hey guys, I'm a junior cyclist race age 18. And I want to pick your brains with some weight questions. Over the winter, I went from hovering around 125 pounds to, as of today, 136 pounds. I spent hours lifting and also drastically changed my diet, and I've seen a huge increase in power. As with any kind of bulk, I didn't gain only muscle, and I want to know what I should be heading into or what I should do heading into my peak races this summer. And he mentions road gnats and a couple other races. Should I do some sort of cut or just sit where I'm at? Thanks. I feel like Luke has gone to college and figured out bodybuilding here with yeah. like cutting That's and bulking. Cutting, yeah, cutting and bulking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the person that I assume at 18 and he was only weighing 125 pounds, I bet a relative climber. Right. And then when you get into 136 pounds, he probably feels very heavy relatively speaking, but if he sees a big increase in power, 
Yeah, I don't still think pretty bad. light though at yeah, 136 exactly. and huge increase in power is how he states it. So I can't find any flaw in that system yeah. whatsoever. Keep uh, it. Luke, look at your power to weight ratio. So that's what's important for you. Um, and if it's improved, like maybe you should gain more weight. Like you could, you could keep building muscle. Yeah. Um, it depends on your height, but 136, I mean, uh, Depending on your height, 136 might be a really good size for you. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't say it. He says hours lifting that, I mean, lifting what? I mean, upper body, lower body. I mean, is he, is he, did he add all of this in the lower body and his <laughs> upper body still light? That's, a, that's a real possibility. Well, no, I mean, 11 yeah. pounds, it's not. Sure. And two, when he talks about a cut, since so you've had a big increase in power, it doesn't sound like you're um, obese, obviously, right? At 136, right. it would be very hard to be obese. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think uh, not a cut, you're just natural training in time for summer you got plenty of time the, the fat's just gonna come off eat don't don't eat like you were bulking again eat like we talked about in the last episode especially if you're 18 i mean 18 you probably eat whatever you want yeah, yeah. but <laughs> you can get away with it <laughs> exactly right? um but that doesn't mean that you can't improve if you're yeah, exactly mm-hmm. that's the thing yeah that's that's the thing yeah um so i i wouldn't i mean don't don't I don't cut at 136 pounds no, for I would, summer. I would just reduce this to performance. It sounds like he's performing better. So if that if that's trending positively, then you're doing something right. Yep. At 136 pounds, you're a relatively for uh, the male field in cycling. You're yeah. relatively very light. You're still uh, light. You got a big bump in power. Probably favors your strength to weight ratio. And, and if it doesn't, even if it's an even even split, now you have more power for. Uh, points in races that don't really, that yeah. don't matter in yeah. terms of um, climbing or not yeah. flats flats more is power what I'm trying to say yeah <laughs> <laughs> points in races where it's not climbing lots of words just to say flats uh, if you think about it you have more power or the ability to, to produce more power thusly you're burning more energy you're going to be burning more and I really I think what Nate said is really important I want to hammer that home is as long as you're fueling yourself adequately and, and try to optimize that as much as possible for health rather than getting away with what you can you know and just you know eating uh, I don't know midnight burritos every night at a, as a college student if you can do that then I promise you, your body composition is going to shift in a favorable direction as you continue to train. But once again, the, the main thing, like Chad said, it's performance. Yeah, it's my number one rule, and I put it in quotes because while it does come down to performance, I don't want performance to come at the expense of health, and that that often happens. Yep. So it has to be balanced with good health. Awesome. Well, with that, then, uh, thanks, everybody, for for joining us for this portion. We're going to see if we have any live questions. We've had issues with the stream and plenty of stuff. So thanks for staying with us today. And only one camera today. Um, only one camera. All the cameras died. Oh, man. It's quite the morning. Let me oh, tell you. Oh, and the sound day. is screwed up. And the sound's oh, messed up the whole thing. So, um, but we're going to uh, go through here and, and and cover just a couple questions that people have, have asked. I'm going to roll through oh, Facebook. It looks like it's all echo. <laughs> yeah, that happens. I'm sorry. Yep. Um, let's see here. So a person has a question here. Um, I've started upping my FTP every three weeks by three to five Watts, thus making the subsequent workouts harder. The question is, will this help me get stronger and faster in time? And should I be doing this or just wait until my ramp test? I'm currently doing the build phase on the middle distance triathlon plan and ready for IM 70.3 race in Mallorca in May. Five, eight, 75 kilograms FTP of 250. Yeah, that's a fine approach. I, I like it. I don't think you have to wait for an assessment to see if there's been improvement. And if you can feel that improvement and you're still completing the workouts as they're prescribed, then obviously you can tolerate that that slight increase from, yeah. what do you say, every three weeks? Every three weeks, three to five watts. Yeah, I, that's a good way to do it. I mean, you could, yeah. you could literally repeat the same four weeks of training over and over and over again if that's the only change you made. I'll throw in one, uh, one caveat that I would say with this is 
you can get pretty addicting to see that three to five increase. And what's well, going to, to taper sure. at some point. Yes. And that's just the thing. So there will be a day of reckoning, so to speak. Yeah. You'll have to change up the stress in some point, yes. but you can wait for that plateau. Sure. It's just make sure that when you get to that plateau, it doesn't uh, completely break you and throw you <laughs> off mentally. Cause that would totally be something that I would do. Right. I'd be like every three weeks, I'm three to five Watts higher Then at some point. I'm like, I can't compete my complete my workouts anymore. Yeah. What's going on? I'd question the whole entire to change existence. things in a different way. The workouts also get harder. So it's, 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 it's that's hard where, to do that. That's where it could get a little tricky. Yep. Yeah. And yep. I, I, I favor the approach of testing when the plan tells me to test. I, I don't know. Uh, I'd rather work out many times at, you know, if I, if I'm three Watts actually above my FTP, <clears throat> but I'm still completing my workouts and I'm able to recover. It gives me a little bit of wiggle room to allow the stresses of life to inject more stress. Well, I think it comes down to it's a little better successful workouts. If the yep. workouts aren't successful, you know, that three to 5% increase is not, not working out. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nate, a question for you. Uh, yes. Uh, so Mike says, uh, I have a question regarding nutrition. I know you plan and replace all the calories you burn during your workouts. Is that, is that accurate to say? I, uh, no, no. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't think that that's entirely what you do there. It says, uh, what is, and this is a general question then for us, cause I see people ask this in other spots. What's the macro goal when you're replacing those calories that you burn during a workout? Mm-hmm. Um, that's super tricky. Yeah. That's a really Very tricky complex. one. Um, do you have any, any guidelines that you would to with that? So I go again, back to the endurance diet. I'm just big on the carb centric. Mm-hmm. So yesterday I did two hours of six by 10 minutes at threshold. And, um, afterwards I got a large smoothie. It was a green whole fruit spinach smoothie. Yeah. And I ate a burrito, a rice bean and pork burrito with veggies in it Yeah. and whole wheat tortilla, like right afterwards, I was probably a good 1400 calories. I think I burned like 1,400 calories. Yeah, but that 1,400 calories, you can't say, I burned 1,400 calories of glycogen. Some of that came from fat. So you can't specifically replenish what you think you burned because it's really hard to say what exactly you burned. You just can't do it. Yeah, it's too hard. After a while, you just kind of know like what fills you up afterwards. And Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. as long as you're eating the the whole kind of foods and- You watch your body composition, you pay attention to your performance, how you feel, how you're recovering. And so far, I've noticed the more I eat, the better I do. So Mm -hmm. it's- it's tough though, because you see the scale move one pound or you, uh, do a hilly road race and you lose by half a wheel and you're like, Oh, if I was one half <laughs> you know, you pound lighter, I could have, yeah. uh, yeah. done better. Mark's question. He says, have you thought about showing power device name on the screen in the app for those of us who have a smart trainer and power meter? Uh, so, uh, first of all, when you go into the devices, uh, page, you'll be able to see, and it actually add custom names to any of your devices that you want. But the cool thing is if you've paired your smart trainer and your power meter, you don't have to worry about that because we have power nap match enabled. So in that case, power match is going to be taking care of it. Using the power data from your power meter is what you'll be training with. So, um, we don't have any plans to implement that fe- feature because I think that power match take care, takes care of it. But, uh, if you, if there's another purpose, uh, let us know. Is Mark. Yeah. Uh, Mark, are you and hi, Mark, you, we might've met Leadville, hmm. um, or I did. I think if he's asking, uh, like if one drops out, but yeah, cause then you'd, you'd be... like to know which one, but what you do is you just look at the device number and you guys know how many devices you have paired. It's usually yeah. one, two or three. Yeah. And that's down it. there in the window, it'll tell you how many devices are paired. Yeah. So if it goes to two, yeah, something's wrong or yeah. if it goes to one and you'll notice data will drop out. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, if Mark message me, if there's another, if I'm missing something, he also says, did you guys sign up for the Iceman cometh yet? Nope. No. 
sorry. <laughs> if we had if we had a dollar every time somebody asked us if we're signing up for Iceman, yeah, okay, we, we'd be very very wealthy. <laughs> a few dollars. The the most devout fans of a race I've ever come across. That's for sure. Um, okay, let's just do maybe one more. Um, yeah, let's do Nico's question. Nico says, how many Watts gain can we expect going from five months of indoor training to outdoor? So he says, my FTP went from 4.2 Watts per kilogram to 4.5 Watts per kilogram this winter. Thanks for train road. And thanks to train road for the awesome product. I've noticed that when people go from training indoors like that consistently, and then if they drop off and they stop doing it, I've noticed a stall or regression in FTP. Mm-hmm. Now you may get something that's, a, and, and this doesn't say that you can't do it indoors. And I'd argue you could do this better indoors that you can't, uh, refine your fitness more for races indoors. Cause that's probably what will happen if you're racing, that's what will happen, but don't expect your FTP to go up in most cases. If you're just going outside without structure or without anything else like that. Yeah, I th- yeah. Well, that's it too. I think when people head outside, they lose sight of all the structure mm-hmm. so that they just want to ride for the pleasure of riding and, and play it fast and loose, which has its place and is certainly fun. But if you were taking, you know, three structured workouts a week and those just go away and now you're just riding three days outside a week, unless you're incorporating some form of structure, you're probably going to slide. Cat three meme said it best. And somebody on the comments said, I just, I go outside and I just kind of do intervals of how I feel that day. (laughs) And he responded with, that sounds like a solid training plan. If your goal is to get slower. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it just like hits the nail on the head. There's a, there's a whole... Uh, forum thread in the forum about uh, uh, losing fitness when you get outside because mm-hmm. of the lack of structure. Training by feel is a valid approach. <clears throat> Excuse me, a valid approach, but you have to have a heck of a lot of experience to base that on. Oh, yeah. And willpower. Because oh, how many yes. times in a workout I'm thinking, this is impossible. No way I would do this. This is impossible. Otherwise. And every time, yeah, if I didn't have Chad like guiding me through it, I would, uh, or trainer road, yeah. I would. Uh, I would not have done that myself. <laughs> totally, And it doesn't take much, uh, just a few workouts. Like if, when you transition, you are in the middle of races and that sort of stuff, two to three workouts a week where you're just really adhering to structure yeah. and you can still maintain a bunch. Just keep a couple. This happens too with, uh, training plans is if I pick the workout personally, I was, I would never pick Mary Austin. That's the other thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Like, like, and then what it you comes up the on, you're already good at. Yeah, exactly. You, know you can like, do well. This yeah. one was pretty easy last time. Let me just do the <laughs> plus one of this, but yeah, yeah that's it, when it gets thrown at you, you can do more than you think you can. Yep. And when you just pick, do it yourself, it's, you don't push yourself usually to the limit that you can. Not so, usually. Some, some athletes, athletes can, some can, um, but man, the, you're special people. <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, remember, you can submit your questions at trainerroad.com slash podcast. You can find out every about everything that we discussed during this episode at forum.trainerroad.com. Just search for episode 199. And then you can also uh, tune in and check out everything that we're doing over at trainerroad.com. Uh, this is an exciting uh, time for us. We're working on some cool stuff. So stay tuned on that front. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.